Well, hello and welcome to episode number 368 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and in this week's packed show, an Antonov AN26 decides to lose some weight. One airline is offering a private jet experience for £9 and we hear of one guy who really does pull out all the stops for a marriage proposal. In the military news this week, the Irish get a close-up look at the United States Air Force C-17 Globemaster, and Armando tells us about the training in the DC-3. So joining me this week, as always, over across the village from me in the PTUK Master Studios is, of course, Matt Smith. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, Friday's come around very quickly at the moment, I've decided. <laughs> These weeks do seem to be flying by. There's I, know, no doubt I can't believe that, we're man. about to hit June already. How did that happen? June? <laughs> yeah. is, is that judging by the rain? Ju- no, judging by the weather, because obviously it's been, you know, I, I think actually, you, you know, you get these like um, time hop things, don't you? Like on Facebook and <laughs> that kind of thing. I've had all these pictures that have popped up this way. You know, this this time last week, I was in my giant paddling pool in the in the back in my back oh. garden because it was so hot. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I have it's 28 degrees. Yeah, no, I have like set it up, just FYI, um, but I can't even bear to put my hand in it at the moment. It's so blooming cold. So, <laughs> Anyway, slightly off topic. No, <laughs> oh, no, the, the sun will come out tomorrow. That's what yes. the song says. There's, anyway. there's a song about that, isn't there? I know. Yeah. We'll give it a song. So, yeah. <laughs> joining us from across the lands in his stately mansion in Buckinghamshire is, of course... The legend of tech and all things AV, it's Neville Bounds. Yes, I don't know what sort of weather you've had over in East Anglia, but in Buckinghamshire, it has been foul today and <laughs> most of the week, it seems. Agreed, well. yeah. Uh, not, a good, uh, not a good bit of weather for flying, that's for sure. If you compare it to this time next year, uh, sorry, last year, mm. uh, it was absolutely beautiful at the, this time in May, wasn't it? But uh, yeah, it, we're yeah. Back, to the, back to the bad old weather, unfortunately. But uh, no, it's been a good week. I've been off this week doing lots of paperwork and admin in and, and that kind of stuff but back to work next week the, the, so uh, yeah looking forward to a superb show once again i suppose the only positive thing we can say about the horrendous weather situation is the fact that if it wasn't for the weather us brits would literally have nothing to talk about good point <laughs> <True>. yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah. <laughs> so he is back this week after being away for two weeks and i must say we are very pleased to have him back on the show this week is of course the amazing Armando. Hey guys, I am happy to be back here. It has been a busy couple of weeks. I think I've flown eight different airplanes in two weeks. Good Lord. So <laughs> yeah, trying to keep them all straight in my mind. It's like uh, speaking eight different languages. But wow. uh, yeah, happy to be back. <laughs> it's good to have you back. I, I, we have seen the uh, the video, obviously, of you with the DC-3, and that looks amazing, mm. Armando. Yes. We're, we're going to share that with you a bit later, actually. Mm. So yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to that very much indeed. Uh, but we are going to have a, um, or we've got a guest on tonight's show who I'll be uh, introducing in just a moment. But before we do, just a quick uh, acknowledgement to all the fabulous listeners and viewers in the YouTube chat room this evening from across the globe. We've got uh, Captain Cruz, who was in ridiculously early before we'd even gone live this evening. So welcome to you, Captain Cruz. Richard Adams is in the chat room as well. Hello to you. Uh, we've got Brandon Plainspotter23. Uh, Graham Haley is also in the chat room. Uh, Owen's in the chat room. Hello to you, Owen. Nice to see you in there. Uh, Tony S is also in there. Uh, we've got Mazus Kareem. Hello to you, Mazus. Hope you're well. Uh, Mash is also in there. I hope where the weather's better across the uh, 
across the way where you are. Uh, our main man, Micah, over in the US, he's in there keeping an eye on things with the blue spanner of doom. Uh, we've got uh, as well, uh, let's try scrolling down. Uh, the blue spanner of doom. Blue, I've never heard it that before. Doom, I know. <laughs> wow. I know. It's, okay. It's a terrible I mean, thing. I'll, I usually use the phrase, you know, moderator, but it. <laughs> Always moderate. We'll call it moderator yeah, from yeah. now on then. But no, welcome to everyone who's joined us this evening. Great to see you all in there. Uh, don't forget, if you're listening to this show as an audio podcast and uh, you want to join in the chat room, uh, don't forget to go over to YouTube, search for us, Plain Talking UK, and uh, hit the subscribe button and the bell icon to be notified when we go live, like now. And you can join us in the wonderful chat room and uh, make comments that make all of us laugh each week, like everyone always does. I like Peter's quote. It's the blue spanner of bliss, apparently. Yes, hello to you, Peter, as well. And Peter, I'm not even going to try to pronounce your uh, your second name, but Peter, hello to you. Welcome to the uh, chat room. And Masha. And Masha. Oh, yeah, hello, Masha. Yeah, I did say hello to Masha. Oh, did you? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I glazed over. I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> so, we have a guest on this evening, and tonight's guest served in the Royal Air Force Flying Tornado F3s. As an air defence pilot, is also a qualified instructor on the Takano and has had the privilege of wearing that red suit and flying for the Red Arrows. And to top it off, he now flies as a display pilot in the Blades Aerobatic Display Team here in the UK. It gives me great pleasure to welcome onto the show Blade 3, a.k.a. Mike Ling. Welcome, Mike. Hello, gents. How are you doing? Very well. Nice to have you on, Mike. How are things uh, where you are in the UK? Well, thanks for having me on. I'm at um, a very windy and wet Sywell Aerodrome, which is where the blades are based. I, I too live in Buckinghamshire, actually. So when I left home this morning, it was pretty grim and I didn't expect to fly today. And unfortunately, the three flights I had planned got cancelled. So, uh, yeah, a very wet and windy Northamptonshire where I am right now. I imagine you're getting ready for uh, what, what hopefully will be a, a busy display season for you guys. Hopefully, yeah. Certainly last year was, was pretty dismal due to the, the pandemic. We got one public display in at the Guernsey Air Show uh, compared to the year previously, where I think we, we must have topped 60 displays publicly, uh, plus all the private ones that we do. So it was a very busy year in 2019 and then completely the opposite last year. So hopefully things are looking up. We've got quite a few bookings for this summer already, and we're looking forward to, to getting out there and, and getting flying. So, Mike, we're going to start, uh, I suppose, where it all began with you. So your kind of start in life, where did um, aviation uh, kick off with you? Well, I grew up in Biggin Hill, which I'm sure most of your listeners know was a, is a very famous Second World War Battle of Britain airfield just outside London. It was very pivotal in the Battle of Britain as a sector station. Every year there was an air show there, the Biggin Hill Airfair, and I went there from, from when I was one year old right up till I joined the Royal Air Force at, at 19. But it was around about my third birthday, so give away my age now, 1982, when I <laughs> saw the Red Arrows, and my mother says that's when I first said I want to be a Red Arrows pilot. So I fell in love with aeroplanes, absolutely. You know, I, I said I wanted to be a pilot, did what I needed to do at school. I joined the air cadets. And then after school, after my A-levels, I, I joined the Air Force as a direct entrant and started my officer training and flying trainings, which, you know, it was as a youngster, relatively, it was it was fantastic. What an experience that was. So the uh, flight training and stuff, when did uh, when did you get your, your, your license, your sort of kind of first PPL license? I did a flying scholarship that back in the day, the Royal Air Force were giving away 20 hours of, of Cessna flying, essentially, in a, uh, in a flying scholarship, guys, which was, it was great because I, I actually flew the aircraft before I learned to drive. So I did my first solo at Manston in Kent. And then I didn't actually get my PPL then because I was joining the Air Force. So I, I did the 20 hours and a few more hours on top. 
and then joined the Air Force. So I started flying training in 1999 on the Firefly, the Slingsby Firefly, which was a fantastic little aircraft. And then I got streamed to Fast Jets, which was exactly the, the path I needed to go down to become that ultimate goal of a Red Arrows pilot. So stream Fast Jets. And then I got my wings on the, the Hawk T1. So as a student, we used to get the, the wings on the Hawk at RAF Valley in Anglesey in North Wales. So I got my wings there. It must have been in 2001. Uh, but then rather than going on through the training to tactical weapons training, I then got what's known as being creamed off. So I became a creamy flying instructor. So late 90s, early 2000s, there was a severe shortage of, of flying instructors, lots of students to train, but not a huge amount of instructors to train them. So for certain individuals that had sort of shone in areas of the course, they would take you to be an instructor as your first tour. So my first tour, as you already mentioned, was as a, a qualified flying instructor on the Tucano, which was great because I was only 22. So a lot of the students I was teaching that had been to university were older, if not the same age. So it was a great experience being, you know, meeting lots of lifelong friends in, in that role as an instructor. Nev. Yes. Well, uh, all the best people live in Buckinghamshire, in my experience. Uh, but uh, but um, what was it like, uh, Mike, moving from the Tucano to the F3? That's, uh, I did three years as an instructor on the Tucano, and then that was in Yorkshire at the Linton-on-Ouse, which sadly is no longer, but at a fantastic base near York and a, a brilliant time in the early 2000s there. I then actually moved to Canada and I moved to um northern alberta in a place called cold lake where there was a nato flying training course there still is but the, the brits don't have an involvement anymore but i spent eight wonderful months flying the hawk 115 which is a bit more of a digital version of the hawk than than at the time the royal air force was using but eight months out there and then from that tactical weapons course in canada is when i was streamed to fly the tornado f3 which i have to admit i didn't really want to go and fly I wanted to be a, a Typhoon pilot or a Harrier pilot or a Jaguar pilot, certainly not the Tornado as my last choice. But having gone to the fleet and lived in Scotland on a brilliant squadron, on Treble One Squadron, it was a, such a great atmosphere. The, the jet doesn't have a great reputation in terms of being a, a fighter, but as an interceptor with the, the weapon system and the avionics suite that it had towards the end of its life, it was a brilliant platform. I had a great time flying it. Armando. Well, that's funny that uh, you mentioned Scotland. Uh, when I was stationed over there at Mildenhall, we used to we used to go up to Lukers, and uh, we never landed there. But we always said, "Man, this is really far up here." <laughs> uh, yeah. When you were stationed up there, do you have any memorable missions or memories from uh, from being stationed up there? Yeah, well, I was based at Lucas, so just outside St. Andrews, so a, a brilliant, brilliant location. So you're, you're in St. Andrews, you've got Dundee on your doorstep, but there was a train line. There was actually a station at Lucas, so you could jump on a train and be in Aberdeen or Edinburgh in, in no time at all. But the best bit was, in, in terms of flying jets, you, it was on your doorstep. The Highlands were there, ready to go and play at low level. And we used to have a mission we called TOO, Targets of Opportunity, where if you're if your wingman went US and you were going over the North Sea for a, a dogfighting or basic fighter maneuvers, BFM trip, if your wingman went US, the, the briefed alternative exercise was to go off on your own at low level around all of Scotland for this TOO, <laughs> this targets of opportunity. So all you would do is fly around the mountains and try and find tornado GR4s from Lossiemouth who were doing low level training missions and you'd, and you'd go and pick on them. You go and see if they would evade you. And it was all good training for them for evasion training. So they were brilliant. And and quite often you would be, be willing your, your wingman to go US so you could go and have a go at that to this TOO, which was, uh, <laughs> it was great fun. You know, you, you'd go off and, and just buzz around Scotland. And the scenery is absolutely stunning. 
you know, there are there are so many amazing valleys to fly down in Scotland that you'd sometimes pinch yourself looking at this beautiful scenery and whizzing past at 500 miles an hour. Yeah, I think 95% of the time when you finished, any of us finished our tour in England, that's what we would do for our, for our final flight in country was go up to Scotland, go through all the valleys and, uh, you know, the quintessential Loch Ness and and uh fly down low level through the uh through the lakes and everything it was beautiful up there <laughs> exactly that totally stunning so mike how did the move uh, to join the red arrows come around well there, there are a certain number of criteria you need to have before you can apply to join the red arrows it's completely voluntary as to be said you're not posted there you, you have to want to do it and have put the application in so these criteria are you have to have 1500 hours of fast jet flying you have to be assessed as above average and you have to have completed a frontline operational tour. Now, by that, it means I mentioned already that that creamy tour, the being a creamy instructor. So you can get 1500 hours by being a creamy, but you haven't done your frontline tour. So you're not eligible to apply. So as soon as I was eligible, i.e. year two of my time on the front line in the tornado, I thought, right, I'll put an application in for the Reds now. I've got these criteria ticked off. So I put the application in, not expecting in the slightest to be selected, but I was totally gobsmacked when they invited me forward for the shortlist, which is when they down select the applicants to nine from, from about 30, 35 applicants down to nine. And then those nine go away for a week long selection process. So I went to this selection process, which at the time was in Cyprus at RAF Akrotiri and had a week of flying three times in the back of the jets, doing a, a very intense flying core, uh, flying test, doing a, an interview with three very senior officers who, through lots of nasty questions at us and doing most importantly the peer peer review peer testing so you'd meet the team and just socialize with them interact with them day in day out and and they would, could see you your entire personality from sort of one end of the spectrum to the other and then they would choose from those nine two or three depending on the need for the following year so that's that's how it came about i applied in my second year on the tornado and amazingly i was completely gobsmacked when i was selected to join wow awesome nev Yes, um, I was just going to ask you, uh, Mike, what's the uh, what's been the best air show and venue, and what country uh, have you been in to display uh, when when you were with the Reds? What would you say uh, that was? I could I could talk for hours about the number of places <laughs> I've been and the and the experiences I've had in the Reds, but there there are three that stand out very much, which is. Uh, in my first year, so 2008, I was Red 3, and we, we actually took the jets across the Atlantic, and we displayed in uh, Quebec to start with, at the Quebec Air Show, where we met up with the, the Snowbirds, the Canadian display team, and also the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds, so the, the US Navy and Air Force, respectively, display teams. So that was an incredible place to be, just meeting our counterparts from North America and Canada. And the best thing about that is, I mentioned already, I, dis I, I trained in Canada in Cold Lake. One of the guys that I trained with uh, was a guy called Marco Rusconi, who in 2008 had become Snowbird 4. So he was in the Snowbirds, I was in the Reds. We trained together four years previously in, in Cold Lake and we got to fly in each other's displays. So I took him flying on a display and he took me flying in the Canadian Tutor on one of their displays. But the display we did with him, it was a beautiful evening. It was a Friday evening, the sun was setting, the conditions were absolutely perfect for a Red Arrows display. So that's one that sticks in my mind. Um, I said there were three, I think I'm lying, there's probably four. At the, um, the next one, we went down all the way to New York Harbor and we actually displayed in New York Harbor where oh, wow. not quite downtown Manhattan, but we were, were definitely, uh, 
you know, the, the backdrop of the skyline of Manhattan was visible. And then at the end of the show, we got to fly past the Statue of Liberty and, and uh, Staten Island. So it, it was an incredible experience doing that. So that was my first year on the team. At my second year on the team, so June 2009 now, I'd actually been selected to be part of the synchro pair for my second and third years in the team. So in the synchro pair in the Red Arrows, the, the Jets, you do the sort of head-to-head -head flying towards each other. And I got to do that for year two and three. But this is where it all came together. And that dream I had in May of 1982 of, of being a Red Arrows pilot and wanting to display at the Biggin Hill Air Show, that's when it happened, June 2009, where I got to display as a Red Arrows pilot my hometown in front of friends and family. And even better, I was doing it as part of the Synchro Pair. So that's one that definitely stands out. So, yes, I've been to some exotic places, but it's those domestic shows and those personally important ones that were definitely lodged in my, my brain. And then I guess the, the next one that stands out was displaying in... Uh, my final display, my very last display with the Red Arrows, which would have been September 2018. I was back as Red 3 now, and we displayed at the, the Monaco Yacht Show. So to close my 10 years in the Red Arrows, I got to display as uh, Red 3 at the Monaco Yacht Show, which, yeah, that is a, a memory that will last forever. Again, the conditions were absolutely stunning. And you look down off the top of a loop in formation with your mates, and you can just see all these super yachts as part of the show. And it's putting a smile on my face now just thinking about it. So, yeah, I, I could talk for ages and ages where I've been. In fact, I've, I've actually landed a Red Arrows jet in 46 countries as part of my 10 years in the team and all the way from from China and as far west as, as New York as I mentioned. So we've got some questions for you from the chat room uh, Mike we're going to kick off uh, there's one here from Tony S he's asking uh, can you give uh, your opinion of the f3 now we've got a uh, a show in the US who we affiliate with the airline pilot guy show and one of their hosts uh, is uh, was also with the RAF, and he has a certain opinion of the F3. Um, but he'd like uh, to have your opinion, your critical opinion of the F3. Well, it's, it's worth saying that sadly it's no longer in service, and that the role it was it was doing as an air defence aircraft has been taken over by the Typhoon. But but the, as I mentioned already, it, it's got a bad reputation as a fighter. Now it was developed as part of the 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 tornado the multi-role combat aircraft so it was primarily designed initially as a as a ground attack aircraft and then it, it sort of morphed into this interceptor and it's, it's key to point out that it is actually an interceptor it's what it was designed to do fly fast get missiles to a place on time as quickly as possible for that it was brilliant it was a super fast aircraft now i had a, a bit of a drag race with a typhoon after the typhoon came into service off the east coast of, of Scotland, so from Lucas, we met up with this typhoon and we slowed down, you know, low level over the sea, so 250 feet, slowed down to 200 knots and at the same time put in you know, max, max reheat, so as, as much afterburner as you could get. And actually, in terms of acceleration, we were doing very well together until we went through the sound barrier and then the, the way that the tornado uh, scheduled its intake ramps to stop the air going supersonic and keep the air subsonic through the engines that's when it the typhoon held its own and it, it shot off and it literally just almost disappeared from my view it just just whistled past and uh, and disappeared into in, out of my view so i would say it was very very good at accelerating at low level and going very fast by the end of its time, it had some brilliant uh, avionics. Data link, the radar was good. It was carrying AMRAM, ASRAM. So the weapons fit was was brilliant compared to when I started and we were flying with Sidewinder and Skyflash. So uh, AIM-9 and AE-7, essentially the, the missiles we were carrying. So it developed, even in the two years I was flying the jet, it developed massively and became quite a potent platform. And when you had that data link and you were talking to the AWACS and you had really amazing situational awareness in a... In an uh, 
tactical environment, it was a brilliant platform. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And the best thing was, is you, you, you got a guy sat behind you who is helping you out with this SA. You know, he is helping you manage that weapon suite. He's giving you situational awareness. He's doing some of the radios. He's operating the radar. And, and as a crew, you could work really well to make it a very potent platform. So I'm, I'm sorry to say it doesn't have a great reputation, but I, w- I would defend it very, very greatly because I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and it was brilliant. You go on exercises. I did a lot of dissimilar air combat training, so DACT, and I've been up against, in a, in a Tornado F3, I've been up against F-16, F-15. I never got to fight the F-18, unfortunately, but Mirage 2000, uh, Phantoms, the loads, um, in fact, a MiG-27, so all the all these different aircraft that I'd go and do DACT with, and I tell you what, actually, depending on who was flying the other aircraft, you didn't always get beaten. <laughs> you know, there was there were some <laughs> cases where if you put the right person in the right airplane. So one one memory I've got is is over in India. I did an exercise in India with a tornado, and I went one v one against a an Indian. In fact, he was the boss of their their fighter weapons school, a wing commander, Indian pilot who was their Top Gun boss. And I started offensive, so I started behind him. And within 20 seconds of calling for the fight on, he was behind me, gunning me. Oh, wow. I mean, he, he could fly that airplane like no one else I've seen fly an airplane. It was incredible. So put the right person in the right airplane, and yeah, it was hard work in the F3. But, but if you had the wrong person in those aircraft, then actually you, you did stand a chance. That's good. That's actually um, uh, we, we, you're sort of touching there on, on like your, some of the the things that you did in, in your military career. And uh, Peter is actually uh, sort of asking the question here: uh, Is there a mission that you were involved in particularly that really jumps out at you? Oh blimey! I have to think about that one. Uh, there were there were plenty of missions where in a tornado you'd be doing lots of different things. There, there was one day in particular we called it a surge day. So what we would do we would be in our tornado squadron so on the ground at lucas but we would be on 10 minutes readiness and this surge day had been arranged by our uh, our training section and what they had done is for a 12-hour period they had booked loads of different uh, other um, aircraft and units from around the country to try and essentially attack lucas simulated attack lucas and our job was to get scrambled when the need came to go and fight whatever you were visiting, whatever you were facing. And then they would have tankers over the North Sea that you'd have to go and visit. So I remember getting scrambled from that, launching south of Scotland, so heading now in towards England through the borders. And the first thing we came up was a, was a pair of Chinook helicopters. Oh, wow. So you're now got to go and fight these. You've got to find them, first of all, and then you've got to fight them. And the helicopters have a really clever knack of, of doing this, what we call affiliation, this affil, where they would obviously slow down. And when you're you're flying a jet, you can't slow down. So then you lose them on the radar. So you and your wingman have to fly this very special tactic to find them again. So that was very difficult. Then we we peeled off from the, the helicopters, and then we'd have some civilian aggressors acting as as jamming aircraft, where they would mess with your systems. And 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 it was it was a very interesting sortie, and so varied. And then you'd go to the tanker, you'd refuel, and then you'd go and meet a four ship of Jaguars or a four ship of Harriers, and go and fight them. And and from a from a formation leader perspective you're trying to think tactically the whole time whilst also trying to manage the domestics of not running out of fuel where's the next tanker can i get to the tanker can i get back in time to replace with the wingman that's about to launch from from the quick reaction so uh, yeah i learned an awful lot from those sort of days and they were very useful 
I bet, I bet. Now, uh, I mean, you've you've been very kind and sort of spoken about, obviously, your time with the Red Arrows and things. And and Mike has got a really interesting question, actually, saying, so, I mean, the Red Arrows are phenomenal, there is no doubt. But as you've already mentioned, there are sort of other display teams as well. Now, obviously, your your current mission, for want of a better word, is is with the Blades. I'd be fascinated to sort of hear how the two styles compare um, and and how things are obviously, you know, it's a different display team and, and, and the differences you've found, really. Yeah, well, I'd, if I look at, uh, was it Mika that asked that yes, question? Yes, Mika. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I, oh, Mika, sorry, Mika. Uh, thanks for the question. We, w- what I'd say about all the jet teams around the world is that they, yes, they're broadly similar, and their their mission is generally the same, which is to showcase the the best of their service or their country. And and I've been very fortunate in working a lot with the European teams, the Spanish, the Italians, the French, the, and, and working with the US teams and the Canadian team I mentioned already, but also the Russians and the Chinese teams. You know, I've been very fortunate to have worked with them as well. They all do a similar job in, in promoting their services and their countries. But what is amazing to see is they all have their different uh, attributes. So the aircraft they fly dictates the type of display they fly. So you might see that the Blue Angels fly an incredibly tight display they fly very very close together Uh, but the faa rules on display flying are very different to european rules so their display is built around those display rules and likewise the europeans are the same one amazing formation that stands out is we were in china doing a display and the russians were there and they had i think it was a four ship of a four ship of su-27s and a five ship of mig-29s but they flew it as a nine ship display so if you can picture a Diamond 9, but with the massive SU-27 in among the, the relatively tiny MiG-29, and they did an amazing display. So the aircraft is different for most display teams. There are some that obviously have the same aircraft, being namely, the, I guess, the Italians and the UAE display team have the Mackie. But they all do different things with those aircraft, and everything stands out brilliantly. But the best thing is meeting the people that do it is they're all so very proud to display to showcase their services and their country. So it's been a real privilege for that. When it comes to my day job now, flying with the Blades aerobatic team, now we are very different. We're we're a four ship civilian piston engine aerobatic team flying aerobatic aircraft. So we are all X-Red Arrows pilots. That's our our, our unique selling point, if you like. But our primary role is actually offering passenger experiences. So the idea is that people who have seen the Red Arrows often say well can i go flying with the red arrows sadly the answer is no it's a military aircraft we can't the the team can't take people flying but it was a red arrows a former red arrows leader who set up the blades back in 2006 and saw a gap in the market thought well i can offer we can offer passenger experiences doing close formation aerobatics so the blades was was established in 2006 as the world's only aerobatic airline and that's that's the day job we put people in the front of the extra 300 and we fly them a couple of meters away from their mates going upside down so it's uh that is day job and what we do to generate interest in those passenger experiences is we'll go to air shows and do flying display so our display lasts about 15 minutes of four ship formation we do lots of gyroscopic aerobatics and and synchro pair-esque maneuvers but the beauty of the extra 300 is that the display is very tight there's always something happening in front of the crowd and you can keep it very close whereas with the jet displays they tend to take up quite a lot of airspace and room so it's very different flying the aircraft because it's designed purely for aerobatics and unlike the hawk for the red arrows which is designed for 
weapons training and fast jet training. But, I was just, um, sorry to interrupt you, Mike. I was just going to uh, mention that uh, quite a number of years ago now, a friend of mine uh, who was based at Sywell actually um, said to me, uh, oh, Nev, would you like to come up in my, my pits one day? And I thought, oh, what a fantastic experience that would be. But then I remembered I'm more of a sort of straight and level kind of guy and <laughs> prefer to be in 1A on a BA uh, A350 or a 777. How do you deal with the passenger experience situation in in your aircraft that that's a very good question that's actually the best part of this job now on a on one of our big days which is a, a ue day we call it an unforgettable experience day we will have potentially five passenger waves plus then we do a display so that our, our guests can have a a, a good amount of champagne and watch the display at the end of the day <laughs> and they'll get to fly in a, in this four ship formation so out of those five passenger waves every single passenger i fly all five of them will react differently some of them that we've flown have never even been in an airliner before this is their first ever airborne experience oh my some, goodness <laughs> some have got ppls so they know a little bit about well they know about flying light aircraft some have been on a, a glider flight perhaps so we're showing them something very different which is that going upside down only two meters away from another aircraft and every one of them reacts differently and that's the fun part of the sortie for us as giving the experience is that we we manage we manage those experiences just to make sure the flight gets they get everything out of it that we can possibly give them and that's the really interesting part of it now i flew last summer i flew a lady she was in i think at least in her 70s maybe even in her 80s so it's absolutely quiet as a mouse on the ground get her in the air next to another airplane going upside down and she was screaming and swearing and giggling and it was uh, it was just a really warm experience for me actually delivering it i can imagine sticking, it, sticking, i was gonna say sticking, well i was gonna say go on then. uh mike i as the resident military expert on this show i could talk about your military career and we're getting uh, all kinds of questions in the chat room about your your military time so i'm glad we moved on to the blades but uh I, so you're talking about the the ability for the general public to to book an, an experience with you guys. Now there, you guys have an additional option where you can, if you really take to it, you can join the what you, you call the flight club, right, and actually get some ins instruction. Yeah, that is uh, that's a new thing we introduced last year, the the Blades Flight Club, which has actually been very popular. So if you've been on one of our UE days, one of these unforgettable experience days, once you've experienced that, you've had your first flight in the the extra 300 with the Blades, you then are automatically made a member of the Blades Flight Club. And then you can come back and do extra modules. In fact, that's what I was meant to be doing today. So these modules are uh, a flying lesson so we get to teach people how to fly aerobatics in one of our aircraft we do advanced formation where yes we've seen formation on that first trip but this is now in advanced formation so we'll do the the very cheesy inverted top gun formation <laughs> we'll do some of our display maneuvers where we'll do a formation stall turn and some other of the maneuvers that you'll see in our display that we don't give them on the first flight we do uh, advanced aerobatics where again we just take it up a gear with the maneuvers that we'll be giving our passengers and then the, the one that's been very popular is air combat so where i've talked about doing dissimilar air combat training in the tornado all of us are former fighter pilots or, or ground attack pilots from the air force with with com air combat training so we just now introduce that to our blades flight club members and we'll go and take a pair up and we'll show them these basic fighter maneuvers and then take them through a uh, essentially a dogfight and it's been a very popular very popular uh, module on the flight club and we're starting to think about introducing a couple of extra ones as well but i won't i won't spoil it we'll wait till they're announced <laughs> before uh, before they come live so going back yeah. to the chat room uh just a quick one from the chat room 
I'm trying to get off the top of the list here now because there's been a lot of questions asked. Um, we're going to go for Stuart McBurney's asking about going for the blades, obviously the display team itself. How many hours a week do you practice uh, before a display? Uh, that is a very good question as well. Now, of course, I'll, I'll start with how the Red Arrows do it, which is in the winter period, they'll be flying three times a day, five days a week. Each pilot will fly 15 times a week, all the way up to, in fact, right this moment, the Red Arrows got their public display approval yesterday. So they're now cleared to display for the, the summer period. Now, they would do that 15 flights a week, every week. With the Blades, because we are a commercial outfit, we don't necessarily train quite as much as that. Now, when I joined the Blades in early 2019, we did fly 15 times a week because I was the new pilot joining the team. I needed to learn the ropes, and that's exactly what happened. I flew 15 times a week at Sywell. Each flight's only 20 minutes because you know, we can't close the airfield for much longer than that. And in fact, the aircraft only carries 45 litres of fuel, which in the display, you're burning probably at least 25 of those litres. So you are limited in, in range and uh, endurance so we would probably fly when i joined the team 15 times in a week now because the display is already honed by the, the current pilots on the team we haven't got any new pilots so we're all pretty au fait with it we're only training when we need to now of course we've had a long layoff we've had seven or eight months without displaying due to the pandemic so at the moment we're just building back up to that we did our force first four ship displays last uh in fact, two days ago, Wednesday, I think it was. Um, and unfortunately, we were meant to do some yesterday, but the weather didn't allow it. So next week, we've got our, hopefully, our display authority, that DA renewal, and then we'll be ready to go. Um, I'm just going to pick up a, a, a comment in the, the chat room here uh, from uh, Pip. Uh, so Pip, who's in another podcast known as the Plane Safety Podcast, he says, the blades seem to use my house near Olney as a reference point to practice over on a daily basis. Please pass on my thanks. Hours of free entertainment. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's nice to have some support. Of course, there are some locals that don't quite see it that way. No, but we, uh, we do our very best. On those, those five flights I talked about, when we do our passenger experiences, we try and i don't want to say spread the love but we just we try and operate in different areas so that all, you know, one area doesn't get all five of those flights now of course there are some days where the only gap might be over only so we have to go towards the gap and that's where we'll do our aerobatics but uh yeah i'm grateful to those who support it and you know, I, we do apologize to those who, who don't quite like it as much and do phone and give us uh, uh, what for quite mike as as, uh, as matt was reading that that comment in the chat room out the the first 50 percent of that comment was a statement you use my house near only as a reference point the second half could have gone 50 50 or you'll be getting a phone call <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah absolutely so i had a bit of a follow-up question so you're flying 15 times a week that's that's quite a bit and and you guys all being military pilots or former military pilots um i you must have you must have done quite a bit of briefing and training before each flight as military aviators. Do you have you carried that on, or, or what uh, what either skills or or traits have you carried on from your military flying into the blades and and formation flying? Well, I have to admit the blades are very much a uh, a cast off of the red arrows. We do everything very similar to the red arrows it's our pedigree we've all come from that background because we've all been red arrows pilots so we do a lot of things almost identically to the to the reds so the way we the way we brief the way we have our escape set up the radio calls they are all generally 
very similar to the red arrows and if if it ain't broke don't fix it you know if uh, if, if it works well in the red arrows there are a lot of things that carry across and certainly from a safety perspective and making it routine and standard operating procedures so and making it sop that is the way to do it and obviously the, the the sops and the red arrows are like this because it's very complex with nine aircraft slightly smaller in the blades because there's only four of us and not quite as complex so the 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 sops are very very much this it's very similar to the Red Arrows SOPs, and, and that's what we've carried forward. And the debriefing is no different. You know, in the, the important thing about in the Red Arrows is that the brief, you, you listen to what the Red One is briefing and what you're going to go and do. You do the flight where you're going to do your best at putting it exactly perfectly. But the most important part of the, the three-step cycle is the debrief. So when something's been recorded, you will sit down and watch it, slow time, zoomed in. The ruler comes out to measure your positioning. You know, you are you need to know why it wasn't a perfect display and what you can do to put it right and make it the perfect display the next time you do it. So that is where the debriefing comes in so importantly. And by doing it three times a day is that it's all fresh. It's straight there. You know, slot one, I, did, I made this mistake. Right, okay, I've just debriefed that in 10 minutes time I'm briefing to go for slot two and then the same for slot three and you, those all those errors are very fresh and you can put them right straight away and then tr train your mind to to recognize what you need to do and we do the same in the blades you know we will sit and watch the debrief call out our errors this is a key point actually for both the red arrows and the blades is that it's not expected somebody else will call your errors it's for you to highlight your own errors and it's that self-critique that is very very important because you know when there are nine jets in the formation people haven't got the ability to look at all nine jets you call your own error out because you know where you're meant to be and you tell everyone that you weren't in the right place and that's why the shape might be affected etc so yeah i think all those traits from the red arrows we've definitely carried into the blades I, I, you know, I, I didn't realise that you did like experience days, and I, I'm very, very nervous that there's going to be a GoFundMe set up in a minute. <laughs> well, I was like, already thinking about that. Yeah, it's yeah come I, up knew, in the last I knew this shows. is where this was going. <laughs> we can have a look Certain at the blades. One of us is afraid of flying. <laughs> we can have a look at the blades.com. Yeah, don't encourage them, Mike. Please, thank you. I'm, I'm what we we like to refer to as a a very nervous flyer. So, <laughs> so well, that's the beauty of of flying these aircraft is that you you get to obviously it's an extra. It's very simple. Hmm. You get to see everything that's happening. You feel much more connected to the aeroplane than you might do in, in an airliner or, or even perhaps a, an otter going to the silly isles or something like that. Indeed. Although, as I say, I think I'm with Tony a bit where, he, where he's saying, I think I'm going to need an extra sick bag for, for this one. <laughs> I have to admit, that is one thing we make sure we, we do our very, very best to make sure the passengers aren't sick. Because it, it, the idea of this is that it's an unforgettable experience for a good reason, not for right. a bad reason. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, and oh, we, I won't we do forget give, it. That's not We an... <laughs> do give our guests gourmet food and all the rest of it. But <laughs> the idea is that we don't want to see that food again. Actually, just out of interest, I mean, do, do they do a package where, where you know, as you say, like you mentioned, like, um, um, people with their PPLs and that kind of thing. Is there like a, like a basic passage package, you know, rather than the champagne and everything, where they can just have that experience? We don't do that as our initial gambit, if you like. Mm. You, you come and do it the the big package first, and then you can bolt on the modules after that. So, yeah, the answer to the question is is no. That the first and foremost, you come flying with the blades uh, as part of our unforgettable experience that said there is another way around it which is if you have a mate who is going flying in a spitfire here at Sywell with uh, air leasing with ultimate warbird flights in the gray spitfire <laughs> as a bolt-on you can put a, an extra on the wing with with a friend or family member in it so that is something that again has been very popular the last um, sort of year or so we've got loads of bookings for that in the summer so it's great for us as well because we get to go and fly in formation with the spitfire and oh, wow. and 
and giving the passenger who has got their friend or family member in the back of the Spitfire and everyone has a big grin on their face. It's, it's a fantastic experience. I, I, I can imagine that. That was Richard Adams in the chat room who was asking that question. It's, uh, oh, it's just so good. I love it. I, I love the idea of it. I, I, I couldn't do it, but I love the idea of it. Oh, don't say that, Matt. <laughs> you can do it. No, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I got a quick question from the chat room here. Graham Haley is a friend of the show, and he asks, is the Blades display more challenging than the Reds display when it comes to adapting to wind because the aircraft is lighter? Yeah, that, that again, is a very good question. Now, the Blades display generally flown at about 150 knots. Reds display between 300 and 380 knots for most maneuvers. So, yeah, so wind definitely affects it at that slower speed. Uh, we uh, have to be quite careful with positioning of the display because of the, the wind effects. A red, a blade 1 is working very hard to, to sort of let the G out to put the, air, the formation in the right place based on wind. So he does work very hard. Now, of course, we're not overly blessed with power while the extra 300 is a powerful aeroplane we're not overly blessed with power so to, to punch out into a strong headwind it's it does take quite a long time and and andy blade one is working hard to get the pitch angle right for a maneuver so that you know you've got less a shallower pitch for when you're facing uh, into wind and likewise if you're trying to stop getting blown downwind then you might be a bit steeper so he, he does work hard at that and then when we do our synchro stuff then yes it is definitely affected more because of course that that wind has such a greater effect at the slower speeds but it's uh, a very good question it, it does affect the jets even at 400 miles an hour but but certainly at the slower speeds of the blades it, it does affect it more Nigel in the chat room has got a question for you, Mike. He says, uh, which aircraft would you love to fly th uh, through the Mac Loop? Oh, yeah, so the Mac Loop, uh, for those who uh, aren't aware of it, it's the, the McConsliffe Loop, which is in just the southern edge of Snowdonia, so just south of Snowdon. And it is a, a very famous... Uh, almost roundabout of valleys where uh, military aircraft have to go around in a certain direction at low level, but it's become very popular with photographers. So you fly through there and, and on a nice day, you have scores and scores of photographers up on the hillside. So incredibly challenging flying for getting down there low level at, at 250 feet at you know, 420 knots. It's, it's a great place to fly and it's a, a very good exercise for, for valley flying. I've been very fortunate. I've done it in tornadoes, I've done it in Tucanos, I've done it in Hawks. Uh, I, have, I haven't done it in a, a Blades aircraft yet, but um, that would be good fun to do. Uh, the one I'd most love to take through there is a Spitfire. I think it would just be so fantastic to, to get a topside shot through the valleys for the, from those photographers of a, of a Spitfire flying through the Mac Loop. So I think the answer to the question is, it's great in a jet, but I really think putting a Spitfire down there would be fantastic. Now, Amanda, you've got some more questions from Mike, haven't you, lined up? Well, yeah, I, I know the, the Red Arrows have a close relationship with the Air Cadets, which is where both you and I got our starts. In the Blades, do you still have that relationship or do you get to work with the Air Cadets at all? That, that's a very good question. You're, you're absolutely right, Armando. I, I loved the Air Cadets when I was there as a teenager. And, and I have still stayed very close to my old squadron down in Biggin Hill, quite often speaking to them. In fact, over the pandemic, I've been very fortunate on, on the Teams and Zoom calls. I think I've spoken to... Well, it's certainly in double figures beginning with three now. I think it's 35 squadrons and, and units over the pandemic through chats over, over the internet, which has been, it's been great to talk to them, but sadly not in person. But I do have a, a very strong link to the Air Cadets. We, we also have our charity partner in the Blades, which is the RAF Benevolent Fund, who have just announced that they are also now supporting Air Cadets as well. So through our link with the Benevolent Fund, we're now very much closely tied to the Air Cadets. And it's very fortunate that that is the case. In fact, I should, should highlight that 
well, I give passenger experiences in the Blades aircraft, and that is great, giving these people experiences that I love to give because I want to share my passion for flying. But after I left the Red Arrows the first time in 2011, I became a, uh, an air experience flight pilot flying the, the Grob Tutor and giving air cadets experience flights in the Grob Tutor, which I knew was special to me when I got to fly the Chipmunk and the Bulldog as a cadet. So being able to give that back and seeing the look on a cadet's face when you get airborne for the first time or you go upside down for the first time, you know, it's, it is some of the most rewarding flying I've done. So I love the Air Cadets, fantastic organization. If there's anyone listening who's thinking of joining, then I would just say, don't think about it, just go and do it. Because it is the opportunities the organization gives are second to none in my opinion. Yeah, and many, many of our cool. guests have actually said the same thing and they've got their starts in the Air Cadets. Absolutely, yeah. I think that many, many of the Red Arrows I've worked with have, have all been, are all former Air Cadets. I wish I'd have joined the Air Cadets. Why did I go to the Army Cadets? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's an unusual decision on your part, know, given your aviation obsession. my aviation yeah. obsession. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. But uh, going back to um, the, obviously, the, 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 the kind of shows and stuff you do, um, uh, this obviously has been a challenging year, as we all know. The last uh, sort of twelve months has been very, very tough for all the the air shows or see or the clubs and stuff around the, the uh, UK. But uh, are there any uh, sort of ones this year that um, you're really looking forward to getting back to? Some of the bigger kind of um, air shows in the UK. I have to admit, all of them. You know, as I said, we only did one last year, which was Guernsey, which was great. It was good to actually go and do a show and, and display for the public. But there are all the shows. I, I'm just wishing the very best for all the organisers, you know, and the display pilots that are involved with them, because it's it's a probably an industry that needs to keep going. You know, it's not a case of you can just stop it and then restart it. People need to keep current in flying the aircraft. They need to keep on top of all the reg regulations and legislation behind organizing these events. So I'm just wishing everybody the best for, for the safe summer. But I think all of them, Bournemouth is always a great show because it's it's a free seaside show. It's normally in the summer holidays, so it's normally packed. And I think the, the biggest show we had, or biggest audience we had in Bournemouth was uh, around 600,000 people on the Saturday of, of the 2014 show i think it was where we had the two lancasters the vulcan red arrows 50th anniversary you know all these huge events that all came together at bournemouth and there were over half a million people on the on the seafront so that's always a great show to go to there are some really good ones that have sadly already been cancelled so the sunderland air show eastbourne the southport these shows are very very popular with all display pilots and unfortunately they've they've sadly had to be cancelled because of the pandemic but let's hope 2022 gives us a, a full full uh, display program yeah. is there any chance at all that we could possibly tempt you to uh, go over to the malta air show in september <laughs> this year i absolutely love malta i've been there a few times if i know i know joe who runs it very well ah, yeah, yeah we're, joe we're in with joe. yeah oh, there yeah. you go so i'm uh, joe and i are, are both board members of the european air show council so I work with Joe and I've been to Malta with the Red Arrows, I think four times, yeah, probably around four times. In fact, I led, when I was a Tucano instructor, I led a pair of Tucanos to Malta and back, which was, a, it, it took us four days each way. So it was, a, it was no mean feat getting Tucanos down there, but what an incredible place. And yeah, if I very much would like to go there. Unfortunately, the range of the extra is about 300 miles. So it would take quite a long time. We'd have to box them up as we did in 2019 to go to Dubai, but um you never know. We might be getting new aircraft soon that have considerably greater range. So we'll we'll see what happens. I'll in, I'll include Look. that when I speak to Joe next. I'll um I'll tell him to uh, yeah. 
one of the questions was from a certain gentleman named Carlos. I don't know who that is. Uh, so now that you brought it up, Tucano or Extra 300? Which aircraft? Which do I prefer? Yeah. Oh, uh, without doubt, the Extra 300. It's, um, it's such a brilliant aeroplane from an aerobatic perspective. You know, it's, it's just designed to have fun. It's, it's great for competition aerobatics and being crisp and accurate with it, with it but it's a forgiving aeroplane to go and have fun with. So you can, you can do some basic aerobatics in it or you can do some quite extreme or very extreme aerobatics. Takano was, it was relatively powerful as a turboprop aeroplane and you could go up to 24,000 feet and go at 300 knots. Um, but it was still it was still a fast jet trainer, so it was relatively heavy. Um, the good thing about the Takano compared to the Hawk, though, was that you could land at places where you could never dream of getting a Hawk. So because it had quite a short landing and takeoff run, it had reverse thrust as well, which helped. But I remember landing a Takano at uh, Oban. Again, we go back to Scotland. You know, I landed a Takano in Oban and the beautiful scenery again, flying around all of the, the valleys of Scotland, then landing at Oban for some lunch. You couldn't do that in a Hawk. Um, but you could get there relatively quickly at 300 knots. So the issue we've got now is that we only fly at 150 knots. So getting places does take a bit of a long time. And in fact, talking about the Guernsey air show we did last year, we actually did that display out of Sywell. So we launched from Sywell, wow. flew nearly two hours down to Guernsey and then went straight into the display, did the display and then landed at Guernsey. Didn't meet anybody just apart from the refueling truck, put some fuel in and then flew the hour and 45 home again. So yeah, it's quite, it's quite, a, it's quite a small country in an aeroplane but it's not as small in an extra as it was in a Takano or a Hawk. Genuinely though you must have been absolutely knackered off the back of doing that because that's a lot of flying isn't it? Uh, the, the transit flying isn't too arduous you know, you, you, you're concentrating you're doing a lot of lookout but uh, it's, it's generally you, you're just um, fairly relaxed and then you've got your 15 or 20 minutes of, of craziness during the display yeah. but it, we weren't that tired it's just the, the biggest problem is um, those of us with small bladders Ah, right. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> no good for me then. Uh <laughs> so I'm on, I'm on those, uh, this uh, chap who uh, does his show with us here. He's got another question for you, uh, Mike. He says, this is a good one, actually. Um, can you tell us about your teammates? How does training balance uh, with trust and confidence? That is a very good question as well. So this is one thing that is very important with a, a display team of, a, of any kind is the level of trust within teammates. Now, of course, you, you've got to know that the person next to you is going to stay in the right place. is going to be predictable. And I say he, but I mean he or she. We're very fortunate to have Kirsty Murphy in the Blades, who is the only ever female Red Arrows pilot. She's now Blade 2 in the Blades aerobatic team. So very fortunate to have her. So when I do say he, I, I do mean he or she. I apologize. But it's very important that you know how you're wing men wing women are going to react and behave so that's where the trust level comes in and that comes from in the red arrows it comes from flying with these guys and girls 15 times a week and developing that trust you start with small formations where you build the proficiency of your ability in flying formation and then the more competent you get the more aircraft are added and then the tighter the display becomes so that is building trust it's building confidence it's building proficiency and that is exactly how the blades do it as well and and in fact every team i work with they start the same they, they start relatively simply with small numbers of aircraft and then the more proficient you become the more complex it can become because you're developing that trust and that bond in your wingmen. So yeah, very good question. And the, the trust is absolutely implicit in all of the operations we do in the blades and also other formation teams. 
Nev, have you got any more questions for Mike? Well, of course, you know, we have to ask all of our guests the question, don't we? So, uh, <laughs> uh, Mike, if you had the opportunity to fly any aircraft whatsoever, whether it be GA, military, commercial, uh, retired or current, what would that aircraft be? Uh, that is a good question. If, you, if you'd asked me that 12 months ago, I'd have answered, I really want to go solo in a Spitfire, which I'd, I actually got to do in September. So I'm not going to use that now because I, I get, I'm very fortunate. I get, I got my hands on the Spitfire and hopefully I'll <laughs> be doing a lot more of that this summer. But uh, so I think I never got to fly on Concorde. And I do think going on Concorde would be the most amazing thing. I didn't even get to fly in formation with it when I was a Red Arrows pilot. I did a lot of mixed formations with some incredible airplanes. You know, the, the Vulcan was always amazing. Uh, flying with other display teams was brilliant, but I never got to fly with Concorde. And I'm always amazed by seeing videos of years gone by of, of Concorde and the Renarios doing fly pass. And I would love to have done that, but certainly to have been at the controls of it, going Mach 2 would have been uh, a real challenge. Just the managing of the airplane with the technology it had. And there was a lot of listening to, to podcasts and interviews with Concorde pilots gone by. And it just sounds like a... a fantastic bit of kit yeah we, we had a, a very interesting well what turned out to be a nine-part series with uh, captain john hutchinson uh, about co the concorde operation absolutely fascinating and uh, bearing in mind it was you know it was designed and built in the in the late 50s and early 60s it was very high technology aircraft uh, for the time wasn't it so absolutely i'm, I'm following with interest that the boom supersonic you know that's that's the next stage and and i think it's there's probably a market for it and i, I, I wish them well with it i know there have been some orders already and and i follow with interest that well, perhaps that could be the next best thing, eh? Go and fly a yeah. boom supersonic. Yeah, you never know. True. Uh, I, I should stress also, Nev's being a tad modest there. He has actually been a passenger on mm. Concorde. He's very lucky in that in that respect. Did you go <laughs> Mac Two? Uh, yes, we did. Um, I was, uh, this is going to sound really uh, crass, I realise, but it was the first time I've ever been on any aircraft oh, wow. uh, when I was a lot younger. And my father had a friend that worked for British Airways and they did these family and friends uh, flights, which was to take off from Heathrow around the Bay of Biscay and uh, back uh, at uh, Mac 2. So, uh, oh, But I was honestly, Mike, I was too young to fully appreciate it as well. Oh, so it, was, oh, no. it was wasted on me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. There we go. <laughs> now, Mike, we're going to start to uh, to wrap up, but I'm just going to slip this last question in because it's important for the pilots and especially for the youngsters who listen to the show. And it's come from the chat room from Alex. And uh, Alex is asking, what advice about aerobatic flying would you give to pilots who are starting to learn aerobatics? Uh, that is... Uh... Where would I start? I've got to think back to when I first learned aerobatics now, which which would have been during my elementary flying training. And I think uh, taking it step by step, you know, everyone wants to get up and put an aerobatic routine together and, and link the maneuvers, do a loop into a stall turn, into a aileron roll, into a half horizontal, into a, you know, all these maneuvers together, but baby steps and, and learn to almost perfect or certainly be very good at flying each one before you then start putting them together. So just taking it one step at a time, I think would be the best advice. And, and slowly, because if you go up there and try and fly aerobatics for half an hour at a time, or even 20 minutes at a time, if you're not used to it, if your body's not conditioned to it, 
then actually there comes a point where you're not learning anymore because you're so disorientated and your body's just saying, what are you, what are you doing to my inner ears here? <laughs> what are just, you doing? <laughs> you've got to just take your time and, and learn to do it at your body's own pace. And you, what, there comes a point where you will stop learning because your body just can't take any more of it. So take it slowly. I know that's easy for me to say in an airplane that I get paid to fly, but certainly for those who are going to put their own money into it, do it in small chunks because I think that you'll learn more and, uh, and become better at it in the long run. Fantastic. Oh, Mike, it has been absolutely fantastic having you on the show. And uh, I think I think we'd have to have you back on just for kind of a, a Mike Ling special, I think. Just to go through <laughs> all the stories, I think we'll have to have you back on. But it's been a real pleasure having you on, Mike. And um, the chat room has uh, appreciated you being on. I'm sure all the listeners have as well. So pretty much on behalf of the whole team, uh, Mike, thank you very much for taking up time on your Friday evening to join us. It has been an absolute pleasure. And, uh, yep, stay in touch uh, with us on the uh, on the show, Mike. Thanks, everyone. Great to talk to you. Okay, Cheers for the questions. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, Armando, what have you got for us next on the show? Well, Carlos, this actually doesn't need much of an introduction. Um, we had a very strange encounter with the communications director of the Experimental Aircraft Association, or the EAA, as all of us know it. And uh, <laughs> he he actually agreed to come on the show. So actually, Matt, uh, if you hit the button, let's play it out. All right, team. This week, we have a very special guest on. We have Mr. Dick Nepinski from the Experimental Aircraft Association, or as we all know it, the EAA. Now, it's a funny story how Dick and I met. Uh, there I was recording a segment last week, uh, our military segment, which everybody loves. And uh, I was on the grounds of EAA headquarters there in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Um, and admittedly, last time I was there to record a segment with that beautiful DC-3 in the background, um, there was a security guard there. This time I went, there was no security guard. I thought to myself, this is fair game. It's going to make a pretty backdrop. Uh, so I started recording away. Uh, in the middle of it, this very nice gentleman in an a official looking blue EAA polo shirt came out. And I thought to myself, man, I think I'm in trouble. And then he introduced himself and I realized it was Mr. Nepinski from EAA. So welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much. It was a pleasure meeting you at that time too. It's kind of funny because uh, whenever somebody appears with a camera and is suddenly about the grounds, it becomes one of my media people, as in one of your media people is out there on the grounds. Would you go see what they're doing? And so I said, okay, you know, somebody pointed out that uh, you were down there recording. So I stopped on out and yeah, you're right. We met and I said, oh, you're, you're from, you know, plain talking UK. That's great. You know, I'd love to be with you guys sometime so here we are let's you know we can talk about Oshkosh and Air Venture and everything else that's right and I, and I have to admit it was one of those little starstruck moments because I have been an EAM, EAA member for a long time um, and being involved with the podcast for the last three or four years uh, we read out quite you know quite a few of the EAA official press releases um, and in addition to that I read the magazine I've been involved with EAA as a as a member um, and I've seen your name for the past couple of years. So it was a bit of a starstruck moment as you probably uh, figured it out. I was like, oh my gosh, here's the man. 
Well, we'll see if we can find you some better stars next time around. You can be starstruck about, but uh, you know, but it's <laughs> great to be here, Armando. I tell you, it's uh, you know, there's so much to talk about this year with Air Venture getting started once again after having the year off. And I've been telling people getting this whole big machine wound up again after a year hiatus is an adventure in itself. And so it's going to be a very interesting Oshkosh, but one we're really excited about. And that's a great place to start is is the hiatus. So I know I'm involved in the Reno Air Races, and it was a very difficult decision um, to to cancel the races. Now, can you before we talk about 2021, mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about how that went in in the EAA uh, circles of what is this going to look like when the pandemic actually hit? What should we do and and how you guys came to the decision of, of canceling 2020. Yeah, there were a lot of things that played into, and it's one of, as you mentioned, it's one of those painful decisions you hope you never had to make. Uh, we started looking late February, early March. Okay, we, we see this in 2020. What could it be? We started talking to health officials, what's happening? And everybody had the same answer at the time. We don't know. We don't know how fast it will spread. We don't know how far it will spread. And so we just kept monitoring. Um, we had to cancel some museum events. And then the state of Wisconsin here uh, put down um, closure orders and so forth for public um, facilities such as our museum, which closed in March. And we kept hoping that maybe this would be a short-term thing. Six weeks, eight weeks, we'd be over the bump and do it. But as we went through April, it became evident a couple of things. One, some of the exhibitors uh, from throughout the country and around the world were saying, we're not going to allow our people to travel there. We started thinking about the 5,000 volunteers who come here. Uh, Many of them are in the upper demographics. They're retired from whatever job they had, and they come here to AirVenture. How can we assure the health and safety of them? And then you started getting to the point in late April, early May, where you start making big expenditures to do things, everything from security to sanitation and so forth on the grounds. Uh, Are you ready to make those big expenditures? not knowing if you'll have an event and you're not going to get that money back. And so as things developed through April, uh, the answer became more and more evident. And then Jack Pelton and the board of directors um, had that discussion and said, if we cancel and Jack to his credit stood up and said, this is my decision. This is my decision alone. And I, I think what we need to do is just stand down for a year and let this run through because there were so many unanswered questions that we could not answer, the state officials could not answer, the CDC um, could not answer here in the US. And all of those things came together uh, to say, okay, let's make the decision early enough so people can plan that they haven't already made hotel reservations, they haven't done this, they haven't done that. So on May 1st last year, we made that decision and it was a tough one. It turned out to be the right decision, the way the pandemic eventually uh, spread around the world. But it's always a tough decision because there's that sense of community of unity at Oshkosh every year that is so important for us in aviation and not to have that. It was really weird to look out on the grounds in late July and see nothing. And uh, that, that was the oddest feeling. And, you know, one other thing that comes up too, Air Venture has survived wars, conflicts, economic downturns, even in 1981, the firing of the air traffic controllers three weeks before the event, um, survived all of it. And it was little bitty virus that this year or last year brought it down. So, um, you know, that's the bad news. But then, okay, how do you build back up? How do you start that sense of community coming back 
to have that big reunion in 2021. And that's where we're at right now. So in that, in that year off, uh, I knew many organizations took it as a time to just kind of hit the reset button. So were there any positives of uh, before you started planning 2021 and, and arguably in the, in the same sort of nebulous atmosphere, we didn't know where the pandemic was going, but for during the time off, were there any positives that came out of that? Did you guys uh, have some new innovative ideas for 2021 and further? Yeah, some of the first things we had to do, of course, were to make sure where are we? What can we do to safeguard employees and, and things like that? When can we open the museum back up? Uh, that occurred in August of last year. We could finally open up the museum. So those things were all part of it. Um, and once we started to stabilize all of that, knowing where we were, we could start to do some of the other things. Uh, developmental items such as our Aero Educate program, we kept moving forward with that, uh, we've made a preliminary introduction for that program for youth to get them involved in aviation. We'll have the big announcement coming up at AirVenture. Uh, one happy guy was our facilities guy, because not only is there AirVenture, there are all the rental events that use our grounds throughout the entire year. And without any of those, he said, I could get rid of five years of backlog projects all at once in one year. Uh, and so as long as they kept everybody safe and, and did all the right things as far as precautions and COVID protocols, they could get out there and fix up buildings and, and pave some roads and, and move some things around that uh, we'd been thinking about doing for a while. Uh, one thing that we discovered too was, uh, you may recall last summer, in place of AirVenture, we had Spirit of Aviation Week, an entire online five days. And people such as NASA and the Air Force stepped up, our forum presenters stepped up, did their things for that week we learned a lot more about what we can do in a virtual sense to augment the live event of AirVenture to keep people who maybe they can't make it to Oshkosh one year to keep them engaged, keep them involved. And we're starting to incorporate a few of those things this year. And as our technology capabilities grow, we'll probably do more of that in the future to make it a true global event, both live here at Whitman Regional Airport and for people around the world. And that's, that's great because that, 22 years I served in the military and Oshkosh was always on my bucket list and I never made it. I was always somewhere in the country or somewhere around the world. So that will be a fantastic opportunity for everyone because I guarantee you there are tens of thousands of people that dream about Oshkosh. And yeah, with technology, this is going to be a great way for them to experience it, isn't it? It will be. And uh, yeah, there are airplane geeks everywhere. And we, we hear from them uh, things such as EA radio and the things that we do during the course of AirVenture. Um, you mentioned the military. We've heard from Iraq and Afghanistan, some of the troops stationed there throughout uh, the past decade saying, man, we can't make it to Oshkosh this year. But right now we're listening to the interview with the Apollo astronaut that's on EA radio. This is so cool. What time is it there? It's two 30 in the morning and we're listening to this. It's like, well, great. This is, this is fun. And we want to bring that kind of engagement uh, to people in a more robust way. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of technological hurdles to do that, uh, especially with an event this large, but we're going to take those baby steps and start to incorporate that and, and see what we can do and what the future might hold. Now, you, that was a, that's a great segue into the military, and, and I want to talk about some of the COVID precautions that you guys are going to take and the safety protocols, 
But but with the military, now you guys just recently announced that Air Force Special Operations Command is going to be one of the title exhibitors this year. Mm-hmm. How how did that come about? It was actually scheduled for 2020. Uh, we had had featured groups um, from the military. One year we had Year of the Bombers and we had Year of the Fighter and Year of the Tankers. And you start developing these contacts with different um, groups within the Air Force, within the Navy, within the Army, all, all the military branches. And Air Force Special Operations was here, I think, Year of the Bombers back um, uh, three or four years ago. And they said, you know, would would you'd like to do something with special operations? Here's the stuff we do. And we went, well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I think people would love to see those type of things, uh, flying on the ground and so forth, talk to the people involved with special ops and so forth. And so we had planned it for 2020. And of course, when that had to be put on hiatus, we said, uh, are you folks still interested in 2021? Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll be there. Uh, matter of fact, there are a few new ideas we came up with that we can bring here and said, great, let's let's do that. Let's um, put it together. So we just shoved it forward into 2021 and started the planning again. And uh, one benefit is you get to know people over the course of a year and the contacts are there. Oftentimes for Air Venture, you're planning over a six, six to nine month cycle and you meet somebody and you work with them very quickly and then the year ends and maybe you'll hear from them again, maybe not depending on what the relationship might be. But here we had two years to put it together and really talk it through well with not only that but other ones that we had from 2020 and, and put it together. And so we're really looking forward to it. Special ops or ABSOC is uh, really committed to it. Uh, they're sending leadership here. They're sending materials and, and people and aircraft here. So uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, it's all coming in. Uh, the bulk of it's coming in on Thursday, which is July 29th. It's right at the start of the air show. So be ready for a massive invasion of Air Force Special Ops aircraft all coming in that afternoon. So if you want some fun, that's going to be the afternoon to come and watch that. It is something that they do well. And I will, I'll be honest, as a AFSOC aviator, that was one of the highlights of my career. We used to participate. I was over in England, which is how we ended up here at PTUK. Um, and one of the highlights was going to the Royal International Air Tattoo. Oh, yeah. Um, because Air Force Special Operations is not a very well-known niche in aviation. And the opportunity to highlight to the, to the public and, and open up the airplanes, which I'm sure they will this year, and will open up the airplanes and, and let people walk, walk through them and realize, oh, man, they're, they're actually not that big. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hopefully you've gotten to see some of the Ospreys and, and uh, the AC-130 gunships, and, and uh, it's probably not what people imagine they are on the inside. That, that's true. Yeah. And, you know, and they asked, well, what would you like? We just tell them, you know, send at least one of everything. We'll figure it out when yeah. it gets here. And, uh, and they've basically done that. And so um, there's a big long list, probably eight to 10 different aircraft that will be part of the display and flying operations uh, during the course of Thursday through Sunday when they're here. So it's, yeah, we're really excited about that and looking forward to it. Yeah, and it's not just the airplanes either. It's the battlefield airmen that are out there, the mm-hmm. air traffic, the tactical air traffic controllers, and the pararescue men, and uh, all those folks. I'm sure they're going to do a, a exhibitor involvement this year for 2021. Right now, we have more than 700 exhibitors 
lined up. And there are still people coming to us. Uh, what people have realized, and Sun and Fun a couple of weeks back or a month ago, uh, really helped bring that into focus. Um, Sun and Fun, some exhibitors didn't go to Sun and Fun, but they heard from the exhibitors that were there. Wow, was a great event. You should have been there. And so they're saying, yeah, we're coming to Oshkosh because they've been, they're getting a little cabin fever too. Uh, you, know, you, you don't have the opportunity to meet with your customers uh, like you can at Oshkosh or, or at Sun and Fun. Uh, it's face-to-face, uh, you do business there, you get to talk about the features of whatever you had. You know, I always kid people that Oshkosh is this unique place that you can buy an airplane t-shirt and go next door and buy the airplane to match it if you'd like. And, uh, you know, and people do that. It's amazing. People write the big checks to put deposits down on, on, on TBMs and big Cessna aircraft and the brand new Cirrus or whatever it happens to be, or an aircraft kit. And so, um, it's really been heartening to see what's been happening there. Now, people will see things a little bit differently. Uh, we have the four big exhibit buildings on the grounds, of course, which are usually packed to the gills with exhibitors, one right next to one another. Uh, what we've done this year is taken some of the exhibitors and moved them to what's been known as Aviation Gateway Park in past years. And there are large hard-sided tents there. And we've taken some of the exhibitors and moved them there. And what that allows us to do is open up the aisles a little bit more, bring more ventilation into the exhibit hangers and into the tents and give everybody a little more space. And so some of the exhibitors say, yep, we may, if somebody comes and talks to us face to face, we may be asking them, okay, we're going to put on a mask here if those kind of mandates are still in place or if there's a comfort level there. Uh, but otherwise, we're doing those type of things uh, along with the, the daily disinfecting and everything else that goes with it at this time, uh, but making it a more comfortable experience. And, and we'll see where that develops. So where it goes in future years. Uh, do exhibitors like it? Is it a one-time phenomenon or do we have to consider more facilities, something like this? It'll be interesting to see, but the exhibitor turnout has been very good. We're still adding exhibitors right now. So that's going to be very robust by the time opening day comes around. That's great to hear. Uh, yeah, I, I can only imagine because every anybody that's been to Oshkosh knows how crowded some of those exhibitor halls get. Um, and even even the exhibitor tents, their their own the ones that they erect up, um, they they do get pretty pretty crowded. Everybody trying to get a glimpse of the new sky uh, sky courier or or even the aircraft walking through aircraft. That's going to be uh, interesting for you guys. So, but what what are some of the other changes? Now you guys put out a recent press release about the safety protocols. So in addition to the uh, the cleaning and and the spacing out of things, what are some of the other things that you guys have come up with this year for for twenty twenty one? Yeah. yeah, there's been a lot of planning going into this. In fact, we started meeting with county health officials late last summer, uh, working with the county here, working with the state of Wisconsin, uh, getting the CDC guidance at, as it has evolved. And we continue to meet with them every couple of weeks because, and as we found out over the past month, that guidance is evolving all the time, considering where we were in February to where we are now with the vaccines and masking and so forth. So we're recommending masks because over 1,500 acres with um, 500,000 people over the course of a week, it's almost impossible to enforce a mask requirement. Uh, it's, it's very, very difficult. And um, you know, in some areas, you know, masks have become kind of a a flashpoint of conflict too between people. So a couple of things we don't want to do. We don't want to create that conflict. 
you don't want to put your volunteers in the situation where they have to become the mask police. And you don't want members and attendees turning in each other. That's not the kind of experience any of us want when we're here at AirVenture. So we recommend masks in places where you can't distance. And uh, use your own comfort level. Some people say, boy, I'm not comfortable coming to Oshkosh this year yet. That's okay. We understand. Others say, I'm coming. I'll be there. Um, Personally, if I would say something, I'd say, keep a mask in your back pocket. If there's something, if somebody comes to you and they're wearing a mask, if you want to be courteous, put the mask on. Terrific. Um, What we discovered at Sun and Fun was there were people who wore masks throughout the week, people who did not. And it was great to see because everybody, for the most part that we've seen and heard, respected each other and allowed that to occur. So, you know, pilots as a community are a pretty responsible lot most of the time. And so, you know, let's, let's use the common sense and do that. And even though people may have different feelings on it, um, we've, we've contracted with, uh, some groups, including Jana King. Jana King is a national janitorial services company. And they do things, for instance, they work with the Green Bay Packers up at Lambeau Field. They work with the Buffalo Bills, uh, sanitizing the stadium over the past year. They work with the PGA Tour uh, with all of their big corporate hospitality tents and making sure that the cleaning and sanitizing and disinfecting is done. Uh, They work with a lot of the big casinos throughout the country. And uh, we're working with them this year. You'll see their groups in their t-shirts coming around. They'll be sanitizing, they'll be disinfecting during the day and especially overnight in the heavily trafficked areas. So those are some things we're doing. Um, For EA members, you can avoid the lines this year at the admission registration areas. Uh, We've got, uh, through cooperation with Airbus, we've got express arrival this year where you can get your wristbands in advance. Now that's never happened before at AirVenture to have those in advance. So you have them, all you have to do, park your vehicle, park your airplane, go through the security checkpoint and you're on the flight line and you're set. You don't have to stand in line to get your wristbands. Even if you ordered them in advance, as you had in the past, get the wristbands, there you go. Uh, We're doing the same thing for camping at Camp Scholar. When you drive in with your motorhomes for the four days before opening day, you can print it out, have express check-in, never get out of your motorhome, just go through. It gets beeped and off you go, get your camping spot, and there it is. So those will be the four, that's the four days before opening day. So those kind of things we're putting in. Uh, One thing that's really interesting is for the air shows this year, some of the lower powered aircraft, the aerobatic aircraft, and so forth, we're actually going to have a split air show box. We're going to have two performances going on at the same time, one at the north end, one at the south end. And so the way our air ops people put it, if you go to a football game or a soccer game, um, or, you know, as they say in the UK, the football, uh, European football, uh, that everybody likes to sit in the center of the stadium at the midfield stripe or at the 50 yard line. Well, what we're doing is basically creating two points of action. So you can spread the crowd out a little bit more and have the crowd. Not everybody's at air show center. They're spread out along that, that mile-long, two-mile-long flight line at Oshkosh. Uh, when you have the higher-powered jets, say, um, you know, the Air Force Viper demo team, something like that, they use the whole box anyway. So wherever you sit, you're going to see some fun stuff from the F-16s. But uh, for the other ones, it's a chance for people to spread out a little bit more and, uh, and do that. So those are some of the things that we're doing. Uh, some of the things like theater in the woods, uh, some of the forums, 
Uh, we're doing like every other seat or removing some seating. So there's more distancing between people. And for some of the most popular forums, we're scheduling them two or three times during the week. So everybody gets to see them who wants to see them. And again, it'll be interesting to see, Armando, how many of these actually stay in effect even after the pandemic is over. Uh, sometimes the great ideas come along and you never realized it until you had to do it. And then you discover, this is pretty good. Let's, let's try this again. A um, couple other things we're not doing. Uh, the Monday night concert we're putting on hold this year um, for two reasons. One, that's a place where a lot of people get together very closely. Five, 10,000 people out on Boeing Plaza. And two, putting together the opening night concert takes six to nine months of planning and contracts and everything else. And we didn't want to put the resources into something that we didn't know we weren't going to have come July. And so let's put our resources toward the things we know we're going to have and do that. So the Monday night concert, um, the runway 5K on Saturday morning, those are on hold this year. Uh, some of the the big dinner, the Young Eagle Volunteer Dinner, um, the International Dinner, some of those, uh, we're going to put that on one-year hiatus and then bring it back in 2022. So uh, as Jack Pelton often said, Air Venture might look a little bit different this year, but the feeling will still be the same. We'll all be in Oshkosh enjoying aviation. This is great to hear as, as an attendee, and I'll be there this year, uh, some of the, when you mentioned Express Rival and you guys put out the press release, just that alone, because in, in 2019, I remember being uh, in a line all the way back to the south entrance. <laughs> I, I forget what exit it is, uh, but it was, a, it, it was a good couple hours. And I think we had some issues with rain. It had rained the, the day before yep. Camp Scholar opened up. So, oh my gosh, I think this is going to be huge. And, and I very, very much appreciate everything that you guys have done as a team as EAA as a whole uh, to, to bring the event back and and make it safe for everyone where everyone's comfortable going in there. And I, I know you've got, you guys have done such a great job that I feel comfortable going up, up to uh, Air Venture this year. Well, great. I, I'm glad to hear that. And we're looking forward to seeing you there. Um, uh, the team is working very, very hard at that. Um, the volunteers, the staff, uh, the exhibitors, uh, the people from the FAA and all of that. I uh, want to mention, for instance, the FAA, they're sending all their controllers. They'll be here. They're giving us their support. The FAA Safety Center, where they hold their forums, the government still has travel bans on personnel going. So they, they won't have their usual FAA contingent inside and in their displays and so forth. Uh, but they're going to be here to support the event in an air traffic sense, um, the flight operations sense, uh, uh, aircraft cert and all of those type of areas will be here. So um, they're giving the support that is necessary for the event. They just might not be here in the numbers you've seen in the past. Well, uh, welcome to our London studios. Uh, welcome to the A320 Lounge uh, webinar uh, tech presentation, um, obviously for the 320 series. Welcome to the A320 and 737 Lounge, bringing technical refresher courses directly to you. Using our cutting edge broadcasting facilities, enjoy a fully interactive technical refresher course from the comfort of your own home. All of our webinars are live and you can ask your instructor a question at any point during the day. All of our instructors are highly experienced and can help you. No more expensive nights away from home, no new software required, just an internet connection. Courses are run at regular intervals, so check out A320 Lounge and 737lounge.com for more details.
There we go. Guys, what a fantastic interview. Thank you, Matt, for the help with that, for uh, with Dick Nipinski. That was just a, a great interview. And I, and I, I just appreciate so much what they're doing with the situate with the current situation with the pandemic. And as everybody's kind of awakening out of the cocoon. Uh, and I just, uh, you know, I'm just so excited to get up to Oshkosh and, uh, and meet our, our listeners and everybody that's comfortable going up there this year. So I'm really glad we got to, a chance to do that. Yeah. Um, Are you planning to go? I am. Yeah. yeah as, as soon as, as long as my uh, work schedule allows me, I will be uh, donning my PTUK uniforms <laughs> and uh, applying for media credentials here Excellent. pretty soon. And we just won't have the APG uh, RV to congregate in this year. I know. How amazing is that? That must have been, that must have been such a cool event, though, to be, be part of. It must have been re- really good fun. There's, with so many of the podcast community there as well, that must have been quite a special time. Well, you know, and that's what I told Dick when when I first met him. I said, you know, we we are we are our podcast community is small, and we're actually all friends. We all take different takes on the same stories, and we all talk uh, when we're not on air. And it was just a, a great meeting place for everybody, not just for us, because I, I think all the hosts we pretty much know each other, yeah. but it's the best place to to meet our listeners. Absolutely, and. I really, really, really enjoyed putting names to faces to our listeners yeah, and the APG listeners and and everybody. And and I'm gonna miss, you know, feeding Al and and Pip uh, cheese curds this year in Wisconsin. Right. Yes. <laughs> okay. Had to be a food yeah. reference in there somewhere, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, guys, this wouldn't be PTUK a regular episode if we didn't do some commercial stories. And uh, the world does go on despite all our fantastic guests. So. Do you guys fill up for some commercial stories? I think so. What do you reckon? Let's go. Let's go. All right. So kicking off this week's first news story is one is from the avherald.com. Simon's awesome site over there. And uh, we said at the top of the show about an Antonov uh, losing weight. Well, this one decided to lose weight, but not in a great way. So an unknown Antonov AN-26 uh, freighter flight from Juba to Palok, South Sudan, was en route near uh, Bor in South Sudan when the left-hand propeller detached from the aircraft at around 12.30 Zulu and fell to the ground around 200 metres from a highway connecting Bor and Juba, where workers observed the aircraft and the object fall down. The aircraft returned to Juba and landed safely. And Matt's popped the pictures up on the screen for those of you watching on YouTube, so you can see that there. Yeah, safe to say that definitely detached from the aircraft. Now, I'm just looking at the pictures, actually, and it looks like, to me, like there's a, a slight bit of overheating on uh, the, the shaft that connects to the engine there, but that might just be damage from the so uh, i mean armando i mean you're probably the one most qualified to be able to explain this but i mean we're familiar with you know planes being able to function with jet engines and and everything being able to function perfectly normally with one engine you know safe landing etc does that change uh, when it's a a turboprop like this no sir and that's actually a great segue because we're going to play out some of the dc3 uh turboprop training that i did and that was all single engine so a turboprop is just a jet engine with a with a with shaft a- going through the middle and driving a propeller up front. 
Um, so this aircraft and its certification process would have been certified to fly on a single engine. Um, and these things, as, as rare as they are, these things do happen, whether it's metal fatigue, a maintenance malfunction, uh, or some other, you know, a, a, a bird strike or something. I don't know that a bird strike would call a pro- cause a propeller to fall off. But yeah, the, the pilots would have been trained uh, and the aircraft would have been certified to fly on, on a single engine even an AN-26, which is a pretty old airplane. Yeah, actually, before before we move on, Matt, just quickly, Tony S. in the chat room has made a very good point on that story, that someone now has a great ceiling fan. Good point, yeah, good point, well made. I, I, one of the, I mean, that, that's the thing, though. I mean, again, it's a, it's a bit like the other thing, isn't it? It's, it's miraculous that nobody on the ground was harmed, obviously, when, when something like this happens. I mean, because, you know, not being funny, a propeller falling from presumably a reasonable height, um, you know, could do an awful lot of damage to a building and or a human. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it's two or three hundred pounds yeah. uh, plus momentum and it's yeah. spinning and it's metal. So, yeah, it could definitely hurt somebody. Yeah, definitely a John Lewis home furnishing opportunity, I would have thought. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move on, shall we? Uh, the two next story. Two-year guarantee. <laughs> yeah, two, right. The next story is on the Independent. And I've got some pictures which I'll pop up uh, in a moment for that. But uh, uh, the, the headline is private jet experience for under £9 as Ryanair flies plane with 176 empty seats in a piece uh, for the independent.co.uk travel correspondent simon calder writes of his experience of traveling ryanair after uk travel restrictions lifted last week 13 passengers were on board the flight uh, from faro to stansted bringing the load factor below seven percent a marked change compared with ryanair's average of 93 percent before the coronavirus pandemic champagne and caviar canapes were not dispensed uh, for the full private jet experience but the senior member of cabin crew a young uh, Catalan woman uh, named Africa served oven ready lasagna and Thai green curry to the privileged few on board the price for the flight just €9.99 that's £8.60 in sterling substantially less than the cost of a connecting train uh, to London from the Essex airport the article comments that uh, to fly the 189 seat jet a thousand miles from Portugal's Atlantic coast to northern Essex will have cost around £8,000 in direct operating costs. Ryanair, Europe's biggest budget airline, will have incurred airport charges, fuel costs, uh, air traffic control fees and depreciation even though international leisure travel is no longer illegal from the UK. Uh, a, pres- uh, a prodigious amount of red tape and expensive testing is required by British travellers returning home or foreign tourists coming into Britain. As I say, uh, full article is independent.co.uk forward slash travel. I mean, it's... um. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah uh, there's not an issue, I suppose, if you could always do Ryanair flights like this. But uh, I'm, well, the, to be honest, the I, secret the, the secret is out that Ryanair has lasagna and Thai green curry available. True, true. That 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 is true. I'm also very very surprised that uh, with with such a low load, I can only assume that this was a repositioning flight because I can't imagine with with a load factor being so low that. Um, 
that they actually went ahead with it. I mean, it, I'm, just, I'm, I'm a bit confused, I've got to be honest. No, I, I would disagree with you, Matt. I think the flight was probably scheduled and you need to maintain the schedule. So if you don't execute the flight, it messes up the rest of the day or even two days or three days. So despite the fact that they didn't sell tickets on it, it was probably uh, scheduled as a, as a revenue generating flight. Fair enough. Yeah. And they don't have a choice. They got to move the airplane. True, true. Nev, you're looking a bit tired there. Perhaps you better take this uh, next story. Yes, interesting, isn't it? It's on the uh, heart.co.uk uh, website. And it says uh, British Airways has come up with a new product for its first class passengers by launching their first ever nap pods. Uh, the 40 Winks Lounge will feature specially designed sleep pods where customers will be able to take a 20 minute kip before boarding their flight. Uh, they will be decked out with the world's first chair designed exclusively for power napping where travellers can set a timer and nod off. Uh, other features include a reclining seat, an adjustable privacy visor and complimentary audio content. Uh, they are available without pre-booking and incorporate a traffic light system. I think we've had enough of traffic light systems over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> don't you? Uh, to show whether they are occupied or free. Uh, the pods will be rolled out at the airline's first lounge at London Heathrow. Well, uh, I'm going to have a go at that uh, in Are a couple you? of weeks' time uh, if I can get into the first lounge with Mrs. Nev, and we'll uh, we'll do a Nev's pod experience. Uh, uh, and also, uh, could, can I just say, in stark contrast to your recent experience whilst passing through Newcastle, I believe. Oh, indeed, yes. There was some uh, horrific pictures of the BA Lounge at Newcastle, uh, which is now completely non-existent. Uh, there is just oh, wow. uh, floorboards and a ceiling, and that's it, basically. What a shame. Mm. What a real shame. Yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to work out whether those pod seats or beds look comfortable. I I think they do. I think they look well. No, uh, we'll have to see. I'm sure. I wonder if Michelle from Turning Left for Less Mm. is going to have a try of those Mm, as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, Well, if I can, uh, if I can grab a a, a pod uh, in a few weeks' time when I go to Portugal, I'll uh, I'll report back. Excellent. Good. That's what we like to hear. (laughs) Armando, too many donuts. uh, Next. Yeah, I was going to say. Speaking of uh, eating, eating at the the lounge, the first class lounge, uh, from. Viewfromthewing.com, the U.S. airlines may start weighing passengers at the gate. Uh, They may need to start doing so in order to comply with FAA rules. So for safety reasons, carriers need to calculate the aircraft's weight and balance, as we all know, and it has to be within the allowable limits for the airplane. However, the assumptions that we've been using for passengers are incredibly outdated. uh, outdated. And um, Americans are actually getting bigger and heavier and the federal government wants airlines to find out how much fatter their passengers have gotten at least for smaller aircraft Uh, so the faa realizes that passenger weights can vary by route and airlines and they want to document this difference standard weights which we used at the airline that i flew for may not be appropriate for smaller airplanes which i flew uh, with a smaller sample size and greater likelihood of variance from the average Uh, Air New Zealand has recently gone through a passenger weighing exercise similar to what the U.S. is doing uh, in order to update its data. And there are actually uh, FAA advisory circulars on this. Each company takes their own sort of take on this. We used uh, different weights for the summertime um, and winter because people are packing more more, uh, 
I guess, wearing more clothes. And then we would use uh, standardized weights for children, women, and men. And uh, yeah, I would say that even in our situation, those some of those weights were uh, pretty outdated, <laughs> especially when you're watching the people get on the airplane. Um, yeah, it's, you'd say, well, maybe we're going to bump that up a little bit. And, and it's just uh, inconvenient when you have to move people around in the airplane uh, when they actually board. Mm. That was a superb demonstration of uh, walking on edge eggshells there, Armando. Very, very, <laughs> yes. very diplomatic. Yes. Which is what you'd have to do when you move a passenger from the back to the front of the airplane. You'd be like, hi, listen, we're going to give you a free upgrade. <laughs> um, so I'm going to need three of you to move, uh, you know, because you're such loyal customers up into first class. And it just happens to be that you guys are all sitting in row 28. <laughs> And on that bombshell, bombshell, <laughs> we'll move on to the next story, which has got nothing to do with food at all. Uh, this one comes from rockpapershotgun.com. I beg your pardon. Where did John get this one from? Uh, this uh, story is Bush Talk Radio adds thousands of audio tours to Microsoft Flight oh, wow, Simulator. Okay. <coughs> explain 11 is available anyway <laughs> if you'd like to play microsoft flight sim i don't because it's full of flaws anyway as uh, a tourist a new add-on is available from bush talk uh, it's a community generated landmark database that tracks where you are in a game uh, when you get close to a registered landmark and uh, on the site it will automatically start telling you all about it just like your mum does when you're in a car oh look a red volvo anyway think of it as an audio tour for the entire world where one that covers everything from magnificent waterfalls to the world's largest beaver dam the audio is surprisingly soothing computer generated voice from a mixture of wikipedia articles websites and texts and player written scripts every official in-game point of interest has a tour but beyond that there are over 8,000 places found and tagged by the community uh, Matt has a video actually of this to play I do indeed so, so so let's have a little listen to the uh, to the audio that they're talking about shall we has a roof height of one oh I don't know quite happened there let's try that again shall we The Empire State Building is a 102-story Art Deco skyscraper in Midtown Manhattan in New York City. It was designed by Shreve, Lamb and Harmon and built from 1930 to 1931. Its name is derived from Empire State, the nickname of the state of New York. Hmm. I, I mean, I'm not sure I'd say it's soothing. <laughs> What do you reckon, Nev? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I think it's it, it depends on people's taste, doesn't it? Really, but yeah, uh, no, I mean it's it's all right, but you know, each to their own. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh <laughs> anyway, Matt, we're yes. going to go for the next story with you. We're going to go back to uh, to Ryanair with this one. Oh dear, they're on form. They're on form, obviously, to, to have two stories this week. Uh, headline uh, from various sources: so DW.com, Bloomberg.com, 
Uh, and the headline is Ryanair scores first wins in fl- in fight over rivals COVID aid. Uh, so Ryanair is uh, the Irish uh, budget airline, won two rare EU legal victories on Wednesday in a long-running row over state aid rules. Uh, it had filed complaints with the bloc's general court in Luxembourg over subsidies provided to Dutch carrier KLM, KLM and Portugal's TAP. Uh, both airlines were provided with government-backed loans at the height of the coronavirus pandemic that were signed off by EU competition officials. Uh, judges faulted uh, EU regulators for uh, failing to properly check whether aid was justified, but judges ruled that no payment repayments would would need to be made until the European Commission had made a new decision on the loans. Ryanair has filed numerous other lawsuits with the EU over state aid and have either lost or had rejected five of their filings. Uh, the Irish gov- the Irish company, sorry, with uh, on Monday posted its biggest loss in its 35-year history, recording a loss of 815 million euros. I mean, that's a really scary number, isn't it? These are telephone number money. Yeah, it is, absolutely. And and I mean, I guess, I I mean, we shouldn't be surprised, really, I suppose, because, I mean, essentially, none of the... I mean, Ryanair is the example that we've got here with those figures. Sorry sorry to sort of go off topic here, but, (laughs) I mean, this can't be the... You know, if if Ryanair has lost that kind of money, I mean, mean, BA must be in the same boat, KLM must be in the same boat. I mean, is he being fair by challenge? I don't know. I mean, is he challenging them because he hasn't been offered... The aid, I, I, I don't, I, you know, it's, it's a funny one, really, isn't it? I mean, I, I do sort of feel really that if, you know, if you're offering it to one of the airlines, you know, so KLM and TAP are, are the two examples here in this article. Uh, I do feel if you're going to offer it to those two, then you need, it needs to be available to everyone within the EU. Yes, and because Ryanair is an Irish, um, well, it, it has UK registration and Irish registration mm. aircraft, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, so uh, a very large chunk of it is indeed in the EU. So, uh, yeah, interesting. Exactly. I can see why he's fighting it, I have to mm. be honest. Yep. But um, as you say, it doesn't see... I, 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 certainly based on the articles that we were reading preparing for this, it, it doesn't seem like the level playing field that you'd sort of hope for. <laughs> So, Nev, you've got a lovely story to end the commercial news with this week. It is a nice one, yes. Um, It says that um, it's on the BBC.com website. A man surprised his girlfriend with a marriage proposal written in the sand of the world-famous Barra Airport. Uh, Jamie Ford, 26, asked if staff would arrange to have the message ready for when he and Anna Pond, 25, flew into Barra from Glasgow on Saturday. Mr Pond spotted the proposal uh, as the low... Uh, sorry, Ms Pond, beg your pardon, spotted the proposal as the Logan Air aircraft slowed on its approach to the beach runway. Uh, Mr Ford said, Anna turned to me and said, what? Once she realised it was for her, she said yes. The couple from Yorkshire were visiting the Western Isles for a short break 
and Mr Ford, who's an aviation enthusiast, had always wanted to visit Barra's Beach Runway, which regularly appears on lists of the world's most scenic airports. He said, I hadn't expected the airport to agree to it, but they did, and even did test flights using a drone to make sure that the message was in the right place for Anna to see. Uh, we got a round of applause from the rest of those on the flight when they realised what was happening. Once word of the proposal spread, the couple received gifts from their taxi driver and a local restaurant. Mr Ford said Logan Air, the airport and Islanders had, help, help, had helped make the occasion even more special. Well, that's nice. What a lovely, lovely story, isn't it? And I'd, yeah. I'd also like to do that trip as well. It's um, a twin otter uh, that they use to get in and out of uh, Barra. And of course, they can only do that when the tide is out as well. So um, that's why the uh, um, the timetable is as it is. So, But uh, no, a very nice gesture indeed. I love that. I, I love the fact that they were test test drones and everything all done to make sure that the the message was in the in the the right place i i mean i suppose one could be a little bit cynical here and suggest that you know extra miles were being sort of gone through in order to you know a bit of pub positive publicity shall we say for the well, airline he's lucky to have other passengers on the plane good uh, point good point speaking, well, mate. Applause because <laughs> most of them weren't you know aren't uh, aren't flying at the moment so good point but, uh, no, it's good, and it, it does actually provide a very valuable service from uh, Glasgow uh, up to Barra on the western Agreed. edge. There. Absolutely. Yeah. Armando, we're going to hand things over to you for the next part of the show. Oh, thank goodness. We still haven't cut the military. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, actually, I did not come up with uh, this one story, but we, we did get one in for the week. So, Matt, if you're ready, you can hit the button. All right, guys, so I'm actually just going to do a quick intro to this story because the audio is going to speak for itself. But from Irish, uh, irishmirror.ie, uh, a, a C-17 Globemaster was allowed to vary the jet's route from Bangor, Maine, uh, in America, of course, uh, to the Air Corps base at Baldonnell in West Dublin uh, in order to fly over Longford, where the uh, aircraft commander was born, as well as sightseeing the Cliffs of Moore in County Clare. Uh, the huge jet, call sign SLAM-69, uh, flew up over the cliffs of Moore so the crew could get nice photographs of the tourist spot before passing over Galway Bay in County Galway and then flying over to Longford. The Irish Defense Forces spokeswoman spoke last night and said uh, and confirmed that the jet, which is normally based at the 452nd Air Mobility Wing in California, landed at Baldonnell on Tuesday morning. Uh, a technicality or a technical stop en route to the UK as part of a crew training mission. It's understood that the Jeff left Ireland a short time later and landed at Presswick Airport near Glasgow. So, Matt, play the audio. Or, uh, okay, uh, I take it you want to go below, uh, fly level 80. If possible, we would like to just to try and uh, grab a quick look at the cliff bar. Okay, if you descend below flight level 80, you're going into uncontrolled airspace. Um, uh, descend below 80 at your discretion. Um, do you want to do that? That kind of scares us, so maybe we'll just stay at 8 for now. Can't imagine anything we'd have to scare a C-17, but uh, yeah, uh, I don't have any, I've no known traffic out there, but uh, uh, 
The weather, I think, will be pretty good anyway. And uh, you, you want to do your own nav around that area? We can, yeah. That would be uh, nice to do our own nav, and then we're going to head up to uh, uh, we're going to head up to Moment, enter Galway Bay, up through Balanaslo, and then we'll go from Balanaslo to Akigo, and then uh, Rhinus from there. Okay. So if you're coming in back south and along the coast, and that uh, we'll be able to get you lower. Um, you'll be in two approaches area, so they'll be able to give you. Uh, lower altitude because that will be controlled airspace. Uh, as you get a bit closer, uh, I'll talk to approach and see if we can get you something uh, lower. That's uh, the big grand. Thanks very much. Five six nine. Okay. Anything within 25 miles radius of Shannon, you'll go down to 3,500 feet. So if you wish now, you can descend to 3,500 feet on the Shannon Q&H of 1011 hectopascals. 1011 down to uh, 3,500 for uh, six nine heading. Slam 6-9 or 7? Go ahead for Slam 6-9. Okay, uh, just to be advised that uh, inside uh, 25 miles, 3,500 feet, you're in controlled airspace. Outside that, uh, you go into uncontrolled airspace, but I have no known or observed traffic in that area for you. Okay, thank you, sir. Uh, we got some great shots of the cliffs. We're proceeding direct to Moment now and then uh, up the Galway Bay after that. Okay, uh, yep, just off. Uh, coming up uh, northwest of the Aran Islands, and uh, again, I see no observed traffic in that area. Great, thank you, sir. And we're going to uh, slam 69, going to try to climb. We're um, out of 4,000 now for flight level 80. Shannon slam 69, uh, we're flight level 80 now, approaching Balanaslo. We're going to stay up here just to avoid getting yelled at by uh, anybody that might be upset later on. Thank you for all your help. Uh, you can deviate as you wish around there. Um, you, are, you are in controlled airspace. I have nothing to affect you if you want to take a look around. Thank you so much. We'll uh, keep you. We'll keep you appraised of our uh, activities. No problem. That's five six nine heavy. We're going to head over towards Longford, and then we will uh, get onto Akigo, and then uh, we'll be out of your hair from there over to Casemont. Yep, five six nine. I'll copy. That's fine. Uh, you can route there as you wish. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a native of Longford, Ireland, and so we're just giving everybody out here a little hello from us. Okay, yeah, uh, well, well, welcome back. And, uh, yeah, you can let me know that whenever you're finished, and uh, as I said, you can deviate as you wish. I have nothing to affect you around there. All right, thanks very much. All right. Well, there you go. That's a, <laughs> that's a, you know, I've said it a couple of times on the show that being an American talking to a European controller, whether they're Irish or, or British is always fun to, to cross that little language barrier because the uh, European ATC communications are usually so structured and us Americans were pretty much all just wearing cowboy hats and wearing <laughs> six shooters. Um, right. So I'm sure it threw them from, for a loop when this pilot is like, hey, listen, I want to do some low level over the cliffs of Moore and uh, just go over Longford and County Galway. We're just going to take a, a gander around in this, you know, gigantic airplane. So there you go. I'm glad they were... <laughs> able to make it happen <laughs> actually tony s is oh. saying in the chat room he said it's good to see so many military aircraft showing up on flight radar 24 it's actually worth noting as well that i know lots of people will probably already have this app but also um plane finder is another app you can get uh, on android and ios and plane finder actually shows up quite a lot more uh, military aircraft 
than oh, okay. uh, Flight Radar. Yeah, worth worth a look. Armando. All right. Well, I guess we're technically sticking with the military because. Uh, uh, so as you guys know, I've been flying a DC-3 in the past couple of weeks, and it's not actually a DC-3. I've been corrected on this uh, a few times by the, instru- by the instructor. It's a C-47. It started life as a C-47. The majority of DC-3s out there that you see flying were not actually DC-3s. They were C-47s. And uh, this is a little bit of a video that I took when I was doing the training, doing my type rating out there, and the instructor kindly let me take some video. Um, with some voiceover. But this particular, out of many, many hours that we did this, is just a quick lap around uh, an airport in California doing some single engine work. So, uh, Matt, hit it. Hey, guys, since we're always talking about uh, airplane training and Captain Al has done some great plain truths about pilots and co-pilots training and the ability for everyone on the airplane to act as a crew, I thought I would take you through something that's uh, not seen very much, um, which is a little bit of training. In this case, we're in the DC-3. That's a turbine-powered DC-3 if something goes wrong. Uh, in our case, the most uh, critical thing is maintaining directional control of the airplane as a tail dragger. So we pre-briefed that, and in addition to that, before we're even going to go fly, we've pre-briefed what we're gonna do in an emergency should we lose an engine on takeoff. Now, the dreaded V1 cut is not what we're doing here because this is a real airplane on a real airport. So we're actually just kind of doing a V2 cut, which is your second segment climb. So at this point, we've taken off. We've got full power on both engines. Uh, the aircraft is climbing away from the ground, and we've got uh, the gear up. Gear up and flaps are which are two of the uh, most critical things, is just to get all of the drag off of the airplane so you're getting up and away from the ground. Now, I, at this point, I'm flying the airplane and I've called for the climb procedure. So you see the, uh, the left seat, the pilot monitoring in this case has gone through the procedure. And as the instructor, he has just said, we just lost an engine. Um, in our case, for this particular flight, we lost the right engine. So very, uh, in the initial stages of multi-engine training, you very quickly learn, uh, identify, verify, fix, or feather. Um, so what we're going through the procedure right now is identifying that yes, it is indeed the right engine that has failed. And on the show, we've talked quite a bit about um, air crews that, that uh, in the heat of the moment, do uh, make their situation worse by pulling the good engine. So in this case, we've identified that it is the right engine, um, and we'll go through the memory items, which is uh, flaps up, which are they are already up, landing gear up, and then pitching for, in our case, V2. Uh, now that is an, an airspeed that we've pre-planned um, before even stepping to the airplane at our weight. This is the airspeed that we need to shoot for should we lose an engine. At that point, I'm verbalizing all of those things. Now this particular aircraft, like many turboprops, has what's called an auto feather system if the system senses a reduction in power to a certain point, it will automatically feather that propeller so you're not having extra drag out there. Uh, you can kind of pick up on that the, uh, the critical thing is cleaning up as much drag, getting the airplane as streamlined as possible for single engine operations. 
So our last step in the memory items is to verify that the propeller has auto-feathered. If it hasn't, we can manually feather um, by just looking outside and pulling the, the uh, prop lever. Now at this point, the pilot flying in uh, which in, in this particular scenario is me, all I'm shooting for is maintaining directional control, um, getting the airplane into a zero side slip configuration, and just figuring out how it's going to fly. That's set up the trim, use some rudder trim, um, whatever aileron is necessary um, to, to raise the wing with the dead engine, um, and then work in the rudders, kind of essentially filling out how the whole airplane is working. Now the rest of the procedure you see the pilot monitoring there, in this case the left seat, is going through um, the fuel dump procedure, trying to figure out if it's required, are we climbing, are we not climbing, and then securing that engine by uh, removing fuel from it, the condition lever in this case, in this airplane, the propeller level lever, um, should there be a fire, uh, we always pull the fire handle. That's going to shut off numerous systems, pneumatic, fuel, hydraulic systems, um, electrical to that engine, so we're not making a situation worse. Um, the generator switches at this point, fuel pumps, auto feather, prop de ice, uh, all of the ancillary systems that don't need to be memory items, that's what the pilot monitoring is doing. Now, we had just taken off. We were only about 400 feet off the ground when the simulated engine failure happened, um, so we were in a great position to just come right back into the downwind and put the airplane on the ground. And you can see at that point, the uh, didn't take very long at all, uh, even in a, in a slow DC-3. Uh, the gear is already coming down, the uh, flaps are going to one quarter, and we've got the runway made. Now, the DC-3, again, surprisingly simple airplane to fly. Uh, you could pull the power on the downwind, which you can't do with a jet at all, and, uh, and glide down to make the runway. So single engine operations are pretty easy in this airplane. At this point, we just kept one big turn coming around, did the downwind, talking to tower, letting them know what uh, our intention is, and we're coming back into land. We just turned onto the baseline. Um, now, at this point, again, you start bringing the throttle back to almost a, a normal a landing configuration, or not, as Captain Nick would say, not the throttle. It's actually the, the power lever. So we bring the power lever because you're in the descent anyways. Now you're removing all of those things that are working against you aerodynamically uh, for single engine, and you're almost back to a normal final. And, uh, and the airplane just lands like a regular airplane with two engines at that point. So we're just, again, pitching for that, that uh, correct airspeed that we've pre-planned uh, for single engine operations. And there we go. We're back down on the ground. The whole thing took about uh, five minutes from throttle up to doing the pattern losing the engine, cleaning up the engine, going through the checklist, and putting it back down on the ground in a safe manner. Um, and at this point, the best part of a pilot's job is just to pull it into parking, throw the keys over to our maintenance engineers, and uh, let them figure out what happened. There you go. There is uh, one loop around the pattern, single engine, in a DC3.
Well, I'll tell you what, guys, there's some great questions in the chat room about the uh, performance of the Basler BT67, the turbine-powered DC-3, as opposed to the traditional engine, uh, radial engine DC-3. And yes, there are uh, significant performance advantages. Um, lead in the chat room, would I like to fly a radial engine DC-3? No, I would absolutely love to. Um, I think this, the sound of the radial engine DC-3 is is just iconic as opposed to the the pt6 powered uh, bt67 um but i'll tell you what that was just a short video guys it was only seven minutes long and i took hours and hours of video um so for our patreon supporters i think matt is going to set up a link that is going to have a little bit more uh video that was just one camera angle i had uh, over the course of a week I, I put the camera in different places uh unfortunately no uh, cockpit audio but, uh, but we'll do a nice uh, talk through with a voiceover of some of the different uh, uh, training scenarios that they go through in a type rating, especially for this kind of unique aircraft. Um, but if you're a Patreon supporter, stand by, we'll get to that link uh, pretty soon and it'll just be a privately listed video that, that mm. you'll have access to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as, a, as a thank you uh, to our wonderful patrons for, for all their support, as I say, we're going to try and do some, some special videos like this that, uh, that are available to those that kindly help us out with the show. Right, we're yes, rapidly we running out of time, guys, so we need to... Yes, uh, <laughs> we need so to we're going to quickly get the caption this for this week done. This is our social media picture on Facebook that we post each week, and we post a picture on Facebook, and we ask you guys and girls to caption the picture with your funniest, wittiest comments. So this week's picture, Matt's going to pop up on the screen. For those of you listening to the audio podcast, this is uh, someone on board an aircraft uh, on an overwing exit, I will point out, wearing <laughs> a what appears to be a tent on their head um so we are uh, going to go with we're going to start with take one each so we'll go with the first one we had from laura who said mom that's not how laundry hampers work and uh, nev uh, mark says ryanair's private suite not quite what we expected <laughs> uh, cabin crew deploy a cunning solution for kids glued to the call button that's from Matt, that one. Uh, Armando, you want to take Peter's one? From Peter, it says, Cone of Silence, 2021 edition. <laughs> I like the sound of that. Uh, Stephen uh, came up with, uh, it's called fashion. Look it up. Right. Yes. Okay. Uh, Steve came up with, uh, that's not what we meant by a travel bubble. <laughs> Nev. Uh, Nigel says, she is sitting next to the door. Why didn't she just step outside? <laughs> Quite. Uh, Colin says uh, some airlines still have outside toilets. Boom. Right. Okay. Jake, Jake says, oh, you don't want to wear a mask, sir? We had the cube of shame instead, if you like. <laughs> I like the idea of the cube of shame. Uh, Dari says, uh, in an event in event of an emergency, please first stow away your tent in an overhead bin or under the seat. And Nev, do you want to take the last one? And finally, Alan says, the middle aisle in Lidl and Aldi unveils its travel. <laughs> latest travels. <laughs> I think that's my favourite. <laughs> I think that's the winner. I think that's my favourite. Yeah, I'm absolutely. already buying that tomorrow from Aldi. Well, quite, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So, now, actually, not... I just wanted to sort of mention um, uh, oh, yes. a, a very much a, a fun story there. And uh, I know that uh, uh, somebody who we've had on the show uh, uh, several times actually would have very, very much enjoyed that particular caption competition and we heard very sad news this week didn't we Carlos about a friend yeah, of the show who who lost a long battle yeah 
uh, one of our very good friends of the show and someone who actually came on to the show uh, on more than one occasion, actually, uh, and gave us some absolute joy. Uh, Don Sebastian uh, from the Pre-Buy Guys uh, podcast. Unfortunately, Don passed away last weekend and uh, very sad news indeed. But uh, it was an absolute pleasure to have had Don on our show and uh, I remember this was one of the times where Matt's playing it out now, for those of you watching YouTube, was where Don dialed in with Skype during a, a live show that we were doing and uh, took us on a tour of uh, the F, uh, FBO where Don was with the aircraft in the hangar. And it was, well, well, Don is just an absolute legend. So he'll be very, very sadly missed as well. And uh, all, uh, all our you know, fond uh, um, you know, sentiments and uh, you know, heartfelt uh, love from all the team here at PTUK to Don and his family. And uh, also to Adam as well over at the show, because I know Adam also uh, was uh, missing him very much indeed. This week he posted a uh, very nice little piece on their show uh, for Don. So, yeah, uh, rest in peace, Don. You'll be sadly missed within the aviation community, that's for sure. But uh, we have some fond memories of Don, don't we, guys? We do. Uh, I will never, ever forget for, for as long as I live. I, and it was just t the best thing about it was, uh, I think, if I m remember correctly, we were actually in the process of interviewing uh, Carlene Pettit, actually, on the show, wasn't it? I think she was on the show. And uh, while we were doing that interview, because I think it was one that we pre-recorded, uh, Don had been in touch to say that he was at work and did we fancy a walk around the hangar which is what i'm playing out now i mean it yeah. was it was just the spontaneity of it and i think one of the best memories i have of me we we were at i think it was it was it pittsburgh uh, and micah i'm sure will correct me if i'm wrong but we were as i say we were at the uh the air show in pittsburgh and uh we had uh you know friends of of apg dial in um during it and he he joined in on one which for me is probably one of the the most enjoyable and funniest things that I've ever ever been involved in. It was such a memorable thing. So, uh, Don, you are you are an absolute legend. Uh, blue skies and tailwinds to you, my friend. And thank you for all the amazing support you gave the show in your time. It was it was such such a privilege to have you on. It really was. And uh, we all have very fond memories of Don, don't we? Yes. So. Moving on uh, to wrap up the show then, we have had some feedback this week uh, from Jacob uh, Darlington Brown. We're going to have that uh, featured in next week's show, so keep your eyes and ears open for that. Got some great feedback coming up from uh, Jacob there. But uh, so we're going to uh, also mention as well, if you don't already know, uh, and check out our YouTube the playlist because we have got the George Lee MBE full uh, list of uh, videos for you to watch over on our YouTube page. So check us out, Plain Talking UK on YouTube. Matt will put the links to that in the show notes if you haven't already yep. seen that awesome uh, set of videos. They will be on there. That's George Lee. Uh, so uh, yeah, catch those out on there. So social media links: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Social media: PlainTalkingUK.com. Search for us on there. The WhatsApp number: If you want to send a picture in to feature on the green screen behind the hosts, plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. Email the show like Jacob did at podcast at PlainTalkingUK.com. And also don't forget our website: www.PlainTalkingUK.com. And why not, if you're there on the YouTube channel, subscribe to our 
our YouTube channel. We'd love to have a new subscriber and uh, you'll get notifications when we go live and you'll help shape the conversation of the show by joining us in the live chat room. So look for us on there. And also on our website, you'll see the links to Amazon. If you do your shopping through there, that's an awesome thing to do. And don't forget as well, our brilliant Patreon and PayPal links. If you want to become a patron yeah. on the show or donate, all on the website, buy yeah. those links yeah. all on the website. Yeah. PlaintalkingUK.com. So, and a couple of people in the chat room have been asking about uh, how they get uh, access to the Patreon link as a patreon.com um, is, is it. But if you go via the website, then it takes you straight to the page that you need. And don't forget our guests. We're going to say a big thanks to uh, Mike Ling from The Blades for being our awesome guest on the show tonight. You can find out more about The Blades over at theblades.com. Their Instagram is The Blades, and on their Twitter is at The Blades Team. You can find out loads more about them on there. And, uh, well, that's about it, guys. We are going to wrap up mm. tonight's show. So big thanks to all the hosts Big thanks to Matt, Nev and Armando and, of course, John for all his uh, work in the background this week preparing the show and the guest as well. So that's it then, guys. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for the show. So from me, Carlos, here in the home studio, from Matt in the PTUK studios, from Nev in his glorious studios in Buckinghamshire and from Armando over in the US in his wonderful studio. Take care, everyone. Have a great weekend and see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. See Take you, care. Bye.